What's up, everyone? This is Greg Sauce. You are listening to episode 113 of the Roto Sauce podcast, and today's show is a deep dive into fantasy baseball rankings with Toby, host of the Batflip Crazy podcast. You can find his podcast in all the usual spots. Check out batflipcrazy.com and follow Toby at batflipcrazy on Twitter. Toby, how you doing, man? I'm stoked to have you on the show. It's, it was nice to meet you at the Barf Draft, and here we are a month later talking uh, talking fantasy baseball on the airwaves. Yeah, Greg, thank, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate you having me on. This is an exciting time of year for fantasy baseball. Drafts are happening as we speak. They're happening in, in, the, in the coming weeks. It's really exciting, and I definitely had a blast meeting you at the Barf Draft. That was my first live draft I've ever done with everybody in the room with that type of board, and so I had a, I had a really good time. Yeah, and um, I don't know, I felt a little bad. I, I delayed our podcast beginning here by bringing my French press all over the floor of my office, and I'm wondering, what is the uh, the biggest like bonehead move you've ever made in preparation for or during a podcast? Oh, man. Um, well, I don't know if it's a bonehead move, but uh, I, I oftentimes find myself recording podcasts in my car. Uh, just because I've got like the kids up or the kids are making noise or my cat is like getting close and wanting to snuggle or, or whatnot. So I don't know if it's a, it's a, it's a bonehead move. I haven't been doing podcasts long enough to have a real great one, but uh, that, that would probably be it is just trying to like be in my driver's seat of my car with my laptop and the recording stuff and not not enjoying myself when I'm doing that. <laughs> yeah, I think in your Barf League draft uh, recap, you ended up dropping the phone or the microphone at some point while you were driving home from the draft. And yeah, I, I've actually really been enjoying diving into your podcast. I didn't know about it until I met you at that draft. And um, listeners, you should definitely check it out. Super comprehensive, uh, really great uh, stats and information on Toby's podcast. But this is my podcast, so we're going to get into some rankings talk. And I just want to briefly kick off the show with some philosophy when it comes to rankings toby because rankings and you know tiers are kind of arbitrary and so i'm curious why you think we still need to use them and and how you think we can we can best use them um and maybe kind of compare rankings to just using maybe pure adp like is adp more useful than a set of rankings how can we use these two tools together to get the most out of our drafts yeah, I mean, I think I think rankings are generally, uh, you know, generally they're helpful. I think they're similar to ADP in the sense that they give you, you know, like if, if you're doing your own rankings, obviously you're diving in like pretty deep on the players or you're taking a look, which are the guys you like, which ones you don't like. It helps gives you a little bit of a guide while you're drafting, especially if you're doing, you know, a regular live draft, um, you know, either in person or where you have a, a timer online. It just kind of helps to organize your your thoughts. You know, you have your spreadsheet there. I actually don't use, um, you know, rankings and tiers all that often because, you know, once you start building your team, I think one thing I'd, I'd, I'd say to folks is that team construction is the name of the game. And I'll also kind of caveat that by saying, you know, rankings are, there are varying degrees of helpful depending on the game you play. So for me, for instance, I pretty much exclusively only play Roto. Uh, and so when you're talking about Roto, um, you, you know, it's important to be uh, getting not only like value from the picks, but also getting, you know, the categories um, and making sure that you're not overloading on one or failing to address one of the categories. I also play in a lot of overall competitions. And so with overall competitions where it's not just you against your league, but it's you against everybody who's playing something like a TGFDI or an NFPC. I think you really need to, to make sure that you're focusing on balance. And so 
with that being the case, you know, rankings and tiers aren't that critical to me. Uh, they're a general guide similar to ADP. Like the way I use ADP isn't to tell me when I should draft somebody, but more to get a, give a sense of where the market is valuing somebody. And then based on that, you know, I need to make a decision about whether I want to, how much risk I want to insert into drafting that player by, you know, waiting an additional round or another round before I select them. So overall, I think rankings are, can be a helpful guide. But once you start drafting players, you really need to be thinking about, you know, how am I constructing my team? How am I addressing different categories, especially scarce categories? And so, you know, for me, um, you know, they're there for for sure. Uh, But I'm also looking at a broader set of criteria in addition to those rankings. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I I totally echo everything you're saying. Uh, ADP rankings, they're just guides. Uh, they're they're roadmaps to how you're going to attack your draft. Uh, they're really just there to help you make mental shortcuts when you're comparing players to each other. And I love that point you made about playing in Roto versus, uh, you know, head-to-head or a points league or playing in an overall competition versus a, you know, a standalone league. If you're going to a different place, if you're playing in a different game, you need a different guide. And so your rankings, your ADP should be tailored towards the format you're playing. And if you play in a home league where, you know, they're, you're using outlandish stat categories, like my home league uses doubles and walks for pitchers, uh, or doubles for hitters, walks for pitchers. And as soon as you add those other categories into the mix, that should adjust ADP, that should adjust rankings, but you're not going to get that if you go to, you know, the the big sites that, that give you their ADP. Like NFC, NFBC ADP is not going to apply to my league. I mean, that's what I love about my home league and fantasy baseball in general is that when I look at the league settings, I personally have to reinterpret how these players stack up against each other and apply it to my format specifically. So um, yeah, when it comes time to figure out like when you're going to deviate from ADP or when you're going to deviate from rankings that you've put together or that you're seeing from other places, uh, you really need to think about how you know a player's value changes based on the format. Uh, what does my team need, not only in terms of position, but statistics, like you mentioned. And then taking it like one level further, I think you can start to think about what your opponents need and thinking about how you're going to avoid or maybe initiate positional runs in the draft. Um, and that's a little more complicated when it comes to auction. But um, for now, we're just kind of thinking about rankings in terms of linear, like this player over this player over this player. Um, Toby, I wanted to check in with you on the idea of position scarcity. You know, some people say that it, it doesn't exist, and I, I rail against that. I mean, position scarcity definitely exists. I think the bigger question is, does it matter? And I don't think it necessarily matters in the traditional sense of look of trying to lock up the scarce positions early. Like, I, don't, I think that's a flawed way of looking at it. But instead, I think position scarcity should drive us to have a plan for each position at the very least. Because I think it's okay to use lower-end players at scarce positions, as long as you can offset that lack of production with the other players you draft. Um, where do you fall on this debate? And uh, I guess what, what are your general thoughts on position scarcity when it comes to drafting fantasy baseball? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I fall into the camp similar to you. I think outside of two catcher leagues, um, I think there's there's position scarcity in two catcher leagues in the sense that catchers need to be valued slightly differently. Um, but I do, I do agree that I don't think that outside of that context, it really, you know, it, it, it's important, I think, like you mentioned, to understand how each of the positions goes, right? So, like, if you're thinking about, you know, for me personally, I feel like second base is, is kind of shallow this year. 
I actually don't like the second base position. And so, you know, if I don't like the second base uh, position, then I may be wanting to think about, you know, if, if there is a value available at second base early in the draft, I might prioritize that over another position, you know, like an outfield maybe or a shortstop where I feel like there is depth. So I think understanding the positions, each position deeply so that you're able to identify where some pockets of value or pockets of players that you like are. Uh, like I mentioned, shortstop, you know, we'll get there in a little bit, but I love kind of some of the back end shortstops that are going between like an ADP of 180 to 220. You know, your Andrelton Simmons, your Jorge Polanco, and your Marcus Simeon. Those are three players that I absolutely love. And so knowing that, you know, I feel a little bit more comfortable not addressing the shortstop position earlier in the draft. But from a value perspective, I don't think it changes their values necessarily except for in the instance where you're in a two-catcher league. And in that case, I think you need to give a little bit of a boost to uh, the over the underlying value of, of catchers um, just because, you know, they aren't as good, but uh, getting some of the top seven or eight catchers um, is is very different than, you know, getting two lower-ranked catchers and, and saying a prayer. Yeah, for sure. Two catcher leagues are, are a different beasts. And we're going to save the catcher position for the very end of our positional discussion but before we get to the positions, I want to talk a little bit about overall rankings. And before we dive in, just a quick kind of disclaimer, rankings are always going to be changing. You know, news comes out every day from spring training. So there's going to be potential for some minor discrepancies between, you know, the rankings I have in my notes, the rankings Toby has in his notes. So we're, we're using kind of loose approximations of where we were uh, when we started prepping for the show a few days ago. So keep that in mind as we go through listeners. Uh, but I want to get to the overall differences that we have, and we're not going to go deep into overall rankings because I don't think there's a ton of utility in overall ranks after maybe the first two or two and a half rounds. After you make a couple picks, after your opponents make a couple of picks, that should completely shake up how you value positions relative to one another, how you value players, and I think that after you know the third or fourth round, you're really just looking at, like if you do care about position, then you should just be looking at the positional rankings, figuring out where the relative drop-offs are in value and going from there, not trying to actually have an overall ranking guide you the whole way through a draft. That's just not going to work. Um, but in general, when I look at your top 30, Toby, when I look at mine, the first thing that jumps out to me is I'm definitely lower on pitching. And I, th I've admitted that this might be a blind spot for me, but I'm still of the belief that I, I feel like I can approximate what the, the true aces do, either with, you know, some volume of lesser pitchers or by, you know, at least hitting on guys who are, are going to make that leap. Uh, I've, I've always had pretty good success in the past identifying which pitchers are going to be able to jump up from that like second or third tier up towards like borderline first tier. And it happens a lot, uh, not as often as it used to. And, and that's, I guess, part of my problem here. But um, talk to me about why pitching matters to you more and uh, why you're more willing to take those elite arms in the first couple rounds. Yeah. So I think all of it, all of it depends on the context of your league and how you want to approach the draft. I would start off by saying that, a lot of my perspective that you're going to hear is coming from a roto perspective and uh, playing in some overall league. So take that, take that, you know, make sure you're factoring that in as I, as I kind of mentioned some of these things. So in terms of my process, essentially what I do is uh, I take aggregate projection. So I take three publicly available projection systems, uh, the ATC uh, steamer, and then the bat, which are all available on fan graphs. And so I create an aggregate projection based on those three, essentially av averaging the projection of those three. 
And then I put those into a tool, um, uh, a standard gains points tool uh, that was developed by uh, Bell, Smart Fantasy uh, BB on Twitter. It's a great tool, but essentially that generates values, at least at the 15-team level. That's why I'm mostly playing it's 15-teamers. So that generates a dollar value for the players. And then based on those dollar values, I don't just take them as as gospel. You know, I, I take a look at the underlying metrics and I try to see, you know, do I agree with the projection? Where might the projection be right? Where might the projection be wrong? And then based on that, that's how, I, how I've kind of created my ranks. And so for me this year, I think there's how I view pitching is that there are a group of, you know, aces, I think. And these are guys who are high value pitchers. You know, you're Chris Sale. Max Scherzer, Jacob DeGrom, Justin Verlander, guys of that nature who, generally speaking, have a track record of success and, you know, have shown to be pretty good investments in, in, in the past. And these creatures have done, uh, Ariel Cohen, who's got um, a podcast, DGFBI podcast, he put out an article just talking about how aces are a good investment and they're important to have. So I, I think I have that group of kind of aces. And then you'll see there's, you know, there's a couple guys like maybe 15 to $20. And then there's a, a bunch of guys from like 10 to $5 in the starting pitcher ranks. You know, volume is decreasing uh, across the game. And so on one hand, it means that you don't need as much volume, but it also creates additional value on the guys that are potentially going to get to 200 innings um, with high strikeouts. Um, again, you need, it, it depends on whether you're doing like a strikeouts league or a strikeout for nine. I generally play strikeout league. And in those instances, my strategy is really to uh, to go after those high value aces. I would love to have two aces in the first three rounds in a lot of instances because that allows me to pretty much skip pitcher, skip that whole kind of middle tier of pitchers, which the research shows were were not super good at identifying who's going to take that next step just based on like return on investment. And then kind of going after some guys, like you mentioned, that I like late, who I think can take, can take that next step. And so a lot of times I'll get two pitchers early on, you know, maybe in the first four rounds. And then I'm not touching pitcher uh, until, you know, after after pick 100. So maybe in like eighth or ninth round uh, in a 15-team league. And so really, you know, I have pitcher, pitchers higher up because, you know, those are the guys that, you know, based on the the rankings and the projections that I'm seeing are actually valued at the most, you know, and so that's why I'm kind of going after them early on. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. You've actually used a, uh, like, actual data <laughs> to project the value of these guys, and I am doing this more based upon feel and based upon, I, I guess, trying to approximate where pitching is going to go in the draft, and this season, uh, and a little bit last year, has been a bit of a wake-up call for me on that, like, I definitely don't put as much research into amalgamating projections coming up with my own dollar values. I'll generally take whatever ADP says or whatever, you know, that other kind of market-based player valuation data is and, you know, then look at players individually, look at their individual projections uh, on fan graphs, look at just the past, you know, two to three seasons of production they've put up and try to figure out, okay, like, is this player undervalued, overvalued relative to where the market has him? And, I mean, maybe I need to take a deeper dive when it comes to uh, the starting pitching position and, and where that value really comes out in terms of dollar-to-dollar -dollar comparisons between players. And I will admit that the TGFBI, uh, some of these 15-team team, team leagues uh, that I've been jumping into, like uh, the Barf League's only a 14-teamer, but 
potato, potato, same difference, right? Seeing where the smart people are going at the position definitely has me questioning whether or not I need to be valuing pitching more. Because I think for the longest time, and I imagine a lot of the listeners to this show will have the same opinion, is that you got to lock up those hitters early because they're more predictable, because they're less injury prone, quote unquote, and all that stuff. It's time to start questioning those assumptions, I think. And I like that you're on the show telling people how you came to that conclusion about pitching because it wasn't just feel or uh, narrative-based. It was based upon statistics and based upon projections, and I think that's important. Let's talk about a couple other hitters that we're pretty far off on, and I want to talk about Jose Altuve, because this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with position scarcity, and I agree with you that second base is not very good this year, doesn't seem very good this year, but but the thing is, is I still like a lot of the mid and late round values at second base. So I tend to just plan to get one of those guys and use my early round picks on other positions. And that's why I tend to pass up Altuve. Now, I, I should probably still be higher on him. I, I will probably move him up the next time I update my rankings just because that boost he provides to batting average is, is so huge. And he doesn't really detract or shouldn't detract from any of the other categories. Um, but you have Altuve inside your top eight. You have him at seventh overall. And so I'm wondering if you can talk him up a little bit because, you know, you're taking him over Nolan Arenado. You're taking him over J.D. Martinez. Like, I think that that will look strange to some people if they look at your rankings. Do you agree with that? And I guess just tell me why you're so high on Altuve. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's it's interesting because, you know, if we if we uh, flash back to last year around this time, people were debating whether Altuve should be the number number one pick over Mike Trout or not. Great you know, point on his his production. And so I think a little bit of uh, of of my reasoning is, is uh, you know, is trying to kind of counteract my own recency bias, you know, like um, and also the injury. So there's a couple things. Number one, I think Altuve was injured uh, for a good chunk of last year, and and that shows kind of end of season. He really performed a lot a lot more poorly um, than he did beforehand. Uh, before he got he went on the DL on July 25th, he was hitting 329. Um, and if you look at him over the course, you know, so he's hitting 329 before that injury last year. He ended up at 316, you know, 346, 338, 313, 341 uh, in the other. Uh, four years preceding that. And so, you know, the reason why I value that so highly is that batting average in today's game, in addition to stolen bases in Roto, and especially in an overall uh, are incredibly valuable. You know, when we talk about scarcity, I like to think of it as a scarcity of categories and batting average and stolen bases is where that, where that scarcity lies. And I think even more than that is being able to get a guy who's going to boost you in batting average and stolen bases without hurting you in any other areas. So a lot of the pushback that I'll get is, you know, oh, well, Altuve is only projected to have like 18 home runs or, you know, his high is 24 home runs. Um, He's not going to get you triple digits, you know, maybe in, in RBIs for sure, you know, maybe in runs. He's done it two out of the last three years. But, you know, there's just not enough power necessarily. And for me, it's like, especially getting stolen bases early, the reason why I'm targeting stolen bases and batting average early is that, you know, I could get Billy Hamilton at pick 150, but if I get Billy Hamilton at pick 150, it's similar to me getting, um, you know, Joey Gallo in my draft in the sense that I really need to build my team around that decision because that's going to make me weak in home runs. It's going to make me weak in RBI. It's going to make me weak in batting average. And so, 
No, yes, you can get stolen bases. Yes, you can get batting average. But when you do that, you're oftentimes hurting the other categories actively. So that's for me why I put a premium on batting average and stolen bases early on. And if you were to tell me, like, I would have one guy to lead the league in batting average next year, I think it's going to be Jose Altuve. And I don't think he's going to get back to that 30 stolen base mark, although it's certainly possible. I think in that Astros lineup, they don't necessarily need that speed. Um, but I do think that he'll get into the low 20s, into the mid 20s, and that that batting average, you know, it's projected at 311 based on the three projection systems. But I think that that's being a little conservative. I think I, I like I like him back at the 320 mark. And if he does that, I'm not really worried about how everything else falls. It's more about whether he stays healthy. Yeah, if I look at Altuve's projections on fan graphs, the, the thing that stands out to me are the stolen base numbers being a little lower than I might expect to see. Uh, most of them have him between... 20 and 25 stolen bases projected but from 2012 to 2017 he stole at least 30 bases in all those seasons and he even stole 56 bases back in 2014 I mean we know the runs are going to be there Uh, the RBI should be fine relative to where he bats in that order Uh, if he chips in you know 15 to 20 homers which I think is is pretty safe it it really is a question of whether or not he's going to give you that speed that you're paying for and I, I don't know when I look at the projection that's why I'm a little soft on it but Again, based upon previous track record for Altuve, he could very easily beat these projections and stolen bases. And if he does that, he's right back to being a first-round value. Um, I really like how you brought up that idea of fading recency bias with him. Uh, you know, looking back to what we were doing in drafts last year and saying, well, Altuve was in contention for number one overall, number two overall in 2018. Why are we so much lower than him on him in 2019? And I'm going to twist the knife on you a little bit here. Like, what about Bryce Harper? Because he's kind of in that same situation where last year he was in that top five, top eight discussion. And now you have him ranked much, much lower. I think you have him all the way down as your 30th overall player. I don't know. That that seems a little crazy to me. Why are you so low on Harper? Yeah, um, you know, I, I probably would boost him up after seeing that powder blue Phillies jersey that they had up on Twitter. I think that looked dope, so maybe I'll push him up a little bit. Um, no, I, I've kind of been a little – I'm normally the low person on Harper um, in in most places. Um, you know, I think the projection for him uh, is, 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 is pretty solid. Um, it's more for me about uh, team construction uh, with Harper – uh, so I have him right now as my 20, 21st most valuable outfielder, you know, but there's like, there's six players that are valued the same number. And then there's a bunch of folks who are kind of within $2 of him. And I think the thing for me about Harper is exactly the reason why I love Jose Altuve. You know, when you look at the, the, the two weakest categories for Harper, and again, this is an average league. In OVP leagues, it's a very, very different story with, with Harper. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think there was there was somebody who was getting crap for Harper number five overall or number four overall in an OVP league, and I think that that's totally justified. I mean, from an OVP perspective, he is incredible. But in an average league, you know, the area where he struggles the most is in batting average and stolen bases. Now, he doesn't hurt you that much in stolen bases, although it's been, you know, three out of the last five years he's in single digits. But I really believe that the the more recent batting average that we've seen, you know, the 249 and the 243 in two of the last three years is closer to, you know, the true talent level from a batting average perspective um, for Harper. When you take a look at his contact rate. So one of the things that I do is 
I try to do this with every player. It's nearly impossible. I just don't have the time. But especially with the guys who are higher up, you know, I'll do some pretty deep dives. And if folks are interested on my podcast, I do like 15-minute player profiles where I really dive deep. But I did one. When you look at Harper, you know, last year his in-zone contact rate dropped by close to 6%. His overall contact rate dropped by nearly 4%. It's well below league average. So he's 6% below league average on in-zone contact. So when he swings at pitches inside the zone, he's 6% below league average there. And he's also 6% below league average in overall contact rate. And so you see his strikeout rate uh, about 4%. You know, that seems to be validated by the underlying uh, underlying skill drop. And so, you know, with that higher K percentage, uh, that's going to result in, in a lower batting average. His BABIP has also gone down two of the last three years. I don't think it should be as low as it necessarily was last year. But, you know, he pulls a lot of balls. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he hits a decent amount of ground balls. He's better than league average, but close to 40% are ground balls. But he has he's, he's, he's shifted a ton. And even this year in spring training, you know, the Blue Jays did a four outfielder shift on him. And he even commented afterwards that he hopes he never sees it again. Well, <laughs> that's pretty much the, the the way to guarantee that he's going to see it again. So, you know, I, I think the batting average isn't great. The stolen bases have been pretty volatile year to year. And I think the home runs, the RBI, and the, run, uh, and the runs are going to be there. I think he gets a little boost uh, going to Philly. But, you know, when I'm choosing my second player, you know, in the second round where he's traditionally going – you know, I'm still looking at, you know, number one, a five-category contributor in that area, if at all possible, or I'm looking for an ace in that spot, and he doesn't fall into any of those categories. And so for that reason, that's why I fade him a little bit. You, how, how do you, uh, how are you feeling about him? I'm, I'm in on Harper. I think that your concerns are very valid. Like, the speed has been very, uh, what's the word, um, inconsistent over the past few years. You know, six steals in 2015, then 21 in 2016. Four in 2017, although that that was only in 111 games. And then last year he had 13 again. I think that he's going to end up somewhere between 10 and 15 steals. I think that's that's a fair projection. That's what most of the systems have him at. Uh, I mean, actually, most of them have him around 10 to 12. I, I think that he can beat that. I, I don't know if he will, though. I'm, I, I am acknowledging that speed is probably the the biggest downside with Harper, but he's not killing you there. You know, he's not giving you one steal or zero steals. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm willing to overlook that with a player. Like if someone's giving me slightly better than average production or about average production in a certain category, that's okay with me, especially if he's contributing everywhere else. And I like what you brought up about the batting average. Uh, I didn't know that about his contact rate. Uh, and again, this is why you're on the show is to kind of <laughs> let me be the proxy for the audience. And uh, you school us up on these uh, deeper statistics. I don't know, though. When I look at a player like this who has an established track record of multiple seasons, one thing I like to look at is just his career slash line. And he's a 279 hitter over his career. And so uh, last year he hit 249 with a low BABIP. I, I think that the projections uh, that have him between you know 264 and 280, that, that feels right to me. And at that point, he's slightly above league average in terms of batting average. Like, Do you know what league batting average is is it about like 250 overall players? Um, I think I don't know what it is overall players. I know in 15 team leagues, like the league average was about 257. I okay. think is the number. Right, and so if Harper can hit close to 270, like he's giving you positive value there. 
so it really comes down to to that for me is whether he leans more towards your evaluation of his batting average or towards mine where I'm just looking at his career number and saying I'm hoping he can get close to that but again that that rising strikeout rate is concerning like I'm looking at his page on Fangraphs right now from uh, about 19 or 18.7% to 20.1% to 24.3% over the last three years. And so if he can't get that in check, then yeah, the batting average is going to suffer. And so that, that that's an issue and we'll have to keep an eye out for that. With that said, um, I, I love the move to Philly for Harper. I care a little bit more than most people about run and RBI production, uh, or at least projections. Um, I think that the, the guys who are truly elite contributors in both those categories are hard to find. And, and while those categories themselves aren't that scarce on their own. Finding players that do both, you know, drive in runs and score a lot of runs, I think that that's a little more rare than than a lot of people will give credit for. You know, you couple that with big power, you couple that with reasonable speed and hopefully a decent batting average, I think that Harper is still a first-round player for me. Uh, and I have him ranked, I think, fifth overall. Now, I, th- what I do between, like, pick three and pick eight is pretty fluid. Like I, I I mess around with that when I do different drafts. Like sometimes I'll take JD Martinez. Sometimes I'll take Harper. And and what I'm really trying to do is just spread out the risk over multiple leagues, draft a lot of different players. Um, so again, in terms of like a tier Harper is in that like mid to late first round tier for me. Uh, but I'm not, I I mean, I'm I'm excited enough about him to to be still be drafting him aggressively. One thing I just say too, is, is for folks who are listening is just that, you know, the context that I'm talking about Roto and, and in, in overall competitions as well. Like if you're in a single home league and you, you, you say to yourself before the draft, you know, I don't want to waste my time trying to win the stolen base category. Like instead of trying to win that, I'm going to focus on the other four categories and try to get you know, eighth place in stolen bases or something like that. I think that's a perfectly reasonable strategy. I wouldn't encourage somebody to hunt the category necessarily. In that particular case, right, like Bryce Harper is more valuable because he's giving you a little bit of stolen bases. And, yeah, there is a little bit of risk in that batting average. But like you mentioned, I mean, like the run in RBI totals, if he's healthy, are going to be awesome and probably going to be even better in that Philly lineup and in the Philly park. You know, this is why rankings are so hard is so much of it is the context and the league permits both the strategy and the value of the players. Yeah. Another player who's like that for me is Anthony Rizzo, a guy who has a pretty similar stat projection, you know, a big home run total, uh, good runs, good RBI, uh, a little bit of speed and a, a good to great batting average, depending upon, you know, where he falls on that spectrum in this particular season. I'm curious why he doesn't rank closer to Freddie Freeman and Paul Goldschmidt for you, Toby, because if you look at their projections, they're pretty similar. Like Freeman is going to give you a higher batting average. Goldie is probably slated for a few more steals, but we're taught we're, I think we're really splitting hairs here. And with that in mind, I think that Rizzo has the capability to deliver numbers that can approximate what Freeman and Goldschmidt do. Do you agree with that? Uh, is there a reason that you have Rizzo lower? Um, is there something underlying that I'm missing? Yeah, you know, I actually love Anthony Rizzo this year. I think he's a big bargain. Like recency bias again, I think is you know with with him not having as good of a year as he normally has last year, even though he was he was on fire in the second half. You know, he's fallen down. I think his ADP is is in the mid mid to late thirties right now, um, and I have him at, at pick twenty seven. You know, in my valuation system, I have Freeman and Goldschmidt as twenty six dollar values, so right next to each other. And I have Rizzo as a $23 value. Um, I think for me, uh, the issue is, so Freddie Freeman is my number one first baseman. And that's because I think Freeman actually stole more bases than Goldschmidt did last year. He stole 11. 
um, after I think stealing like eight the year before. Uh, Goldschmidt was down to eight stolen bases. And, you know, the the Cardinals are not known as a stolen base team. He's going to be in the heart of a really good top of the lineup. Um, and he's going to have some, some protection behind him. And so I see Goldie stealing a little bit less. Um, for Rizzo, uh, I think the one area, I have two two question areas. The first is around home runs. Um, his home run total did drop, you know, last year. I think he finished with 25. I don't have it in front of me. Um, but, you know, he's projected for 29 in the projection systems, which I think is reasonable. But some of the, some of the power metrics were down. Um, whether that was as a result of injuries that he struggled with throughout the year or not, you know, it does insert a little bit of a question mark in my mind in terms of power. Um, whereas I think Freeman finished with with a lower home run total, but I actually like him to hit more home runs. Um, his expected home run total uh, was higher than Rizzo's was, and so and then the other question I have with Rizzo is, you know, he's at seven stolen bases um, right now in his projection, and I just don't know if I buy that. Um, I was surprised to learn this, but he's actually really uh, slow. Uh, Rizzo is, um, you know, he does, he has done a decent job of stealing bases just from like a, a full bases stolen total number. Um, but he actually, um, you know, he's pretty slow and he hasn't been very good recently at stealing bases. So I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but yeah. So I think he was around 50% like over the last three years combined. So given that, I just don't, I'm not going to project him for stolen bases, uh, or, or I'm not going to project him at that seven. Yeah, so, you know, he was six for 10 last year, uh, 10 for 14 the year before that, uh, three for eight the year before that. So not very good at stealing. And so I don't know if that's going to continue, especially since he's super slow. Um, so that's kind of why I see him being slightly worse than, than Freeman and Goldschmidt. But again, like, I think there's a situation where you have kind of, uh, Mike Trout, and then you have Mookie Betts, and then it's kind of a free-for-all. Um, and and uh, Rob Silver said this recently on a podcast, and he's a great follower if folks don't listen, but he kind of said you, you can kind of put all those guys into a hat and kind of and pick them out of, a, out of the hat and then make a justification for why you would draft them like, ahead of the other guys. And for most guys, you can make that case. And I think with Rizzo, like, I can make the argument that he – you know, his strikeout rate fell, his walk rate increased. He got really lucky in the run department last year from a runs per plate appearance perspective. And his expected batting average, I think, was above 300 for the first time in his career. I could also make the justification that he's going to have a better batting average than Goldschmidt. Um, he may still about the same stolen bases and, you know, the counting stats will be pretty similar. So I could have him at a similar value. But that's why I'm a little bit below. But I think it's really splitting hairs, you know, between all those guys. Yeah, I mean, and we're only off, I think, by about seven spots in our overall rankings. And again, like you said, you can justify a lot of different ways when you're making those early picks and who you take in the first round should impact your second round pick, should impact your third round pick. And so th this stuff is going to be fluid from draft to draft. Um, let, let's get into the position specific questions I have for you, Toby. And we're going to begin with the corner spots, then we'll move on to the middle infield spots, and then we'll go to outfield pitching and catcher to wrap things up. Strap in, this is going to be a long show, folks. Uh, but first, uh, with first base... Welcome to any podcast where I'm on it. I apologize <laughs> in advance. Uh, I want to kick things off with just some rapid-fire eligibility questions for you, Toby. Um, because some guys, depending upon where you play, you know, Yahoo, ESPN, and NFBC, they're going to get different eligibility in different places. And in some spots, Reese Hoskins does have first base eligibility. And so I'm curious... Would he rank in your top five first baseman if if he had that eligibility in your league? 
Uh, yeah, uh, Hoskins would be my number five. Uh, he would probably, yeah, he would probably be my number five first baseman. Um, and I think he is going to get first base eligibility depending on your league. You know, he's going to be playing first base every day this year, so he will get it. And he would be my number five first baseman. I think I'd have him slightly behind Cody Bellinger only because I think, um, you know, Bellinger stole 14 bases last year. He's, he had a very good stolen base rate and he's also really fast. I didn't realize how fast Cody Bellinger was. Um, but he's really fast. And so that's a pretty, pretty tight one for me between him and Hoskins. I might give Bellinger the, the, uh, the stolen base edge just because he, you know, however many stolen bases he has is probably how many more he'll have than Hoskins. But I think Hoskins is a really solid, you know, three category contributor with power runs and, and RBI, particularly in that lineup. So I'd probably have him ahead of a Jose Abreu, uh, but behind Cody Bellinger as my number five first base. Yep, I have him at number four, uh, just ahead of Bellinger, but I think that those two guys are, are really close, and, and that's, talk about splitting hairs, I think those guys profile pretty similarly. Next up would be Whit Merrifield, who might have first base eligibility depending upon where he plays. Would he be inside your top ten first baseman, Toby? Uh, yeah, he'd, he'd easily be within my top ten. I think Whit, um, you know, I love Whit Merrifield. I was a big fan last year. His value has gone up to the point now where I feel like there's a little bit too much um, risk, so I probably won't be taking him. Even though you know I talk about average and stolen bases being important, and you know, he's a he's a pretty good example of that. Uh, I would have him probably as my uh, number four first baseman after Rizzo. Um, from a valuation perspective, I would have him ahead of Bellinger because I think you know it used to be the case where when you were drafting your first baseman, you were like, ah, I need to you know I need to get power, I need to get RBI for my first baseman because I can't get it elsewhere. I think those categories are spread out, um, you know, across the board. And so I'm really not looking too much um, at, you know, what the positional eligibility of players is and factoring out their value. You know, and overall, I'd have Whit probably in the late 30s, you know, and so that would put him ahead of Bellinger on my list. You know, and so if you do have first base eligibility, I think that that gives a lot of value to Whit Merrifield because, you know, first base is, is a fairly ugly position for me. I think there's you know, maybe eight guys at the beginning of the draft to kind of stand out. And then after that, I think there's a lot of very, very similar profiled guys. And you could kind of just, you know, they're a dime a dozen. And, and I, so I don't put a, put a bunch of stock in them. I don't have Merrifield quite as high. He would be inside my top 10 first baseman. I think I have him at seventh overall at that position. Uh, but behind Hoskins, behind Bellinger, behind Jose Abreu, I, I just... Don't think it matters, though, because if you're drafting him, you're probably plugging him in at second base or outfield. I think that first base is deep enough to the point where you're probably going to find somebody else you like more for that particular position, and Merrifield would just slot somewhere else. So maybe this is just a bit of a moot point. Now, one thing that is definitely seeming to be a recurring theme as we record this, Toby, is that you value stolen bases a little bit higher or a lot higher than I do, and <laughs> I'm curious where Merrifield would stack up relative to Joey Gallo for you, another player I know you like, uh, but who has kind of the opposite sort of profile where, you know, big power, low batting average. Uh, he will give you some speed, which is nice, but Merrifield is more of that low power, high stolen base, high average Um how do you compare those two players? Which one would you rather own this season? Yeah, I mean, I think it, a lot of it depends on the context. Um, you know, again, like uh, I can't stress it enough, the the roto and overall competition aspect of it makes stolen bases so critical, especially stolen bases that don't come with, um, you know, penalties in, in other categories. 
um, if you want to think of it uh, that way. Um, so Merrifield, right now I have him as a $20 player, and I actually have Joey Gallo as a $20 player as well. And this is in 5x5 five five average leagues um, for Roto. So I do have them valued at actually equally. So I think a lot of it depends. Like the thing about Merrifield is he's not hurting you you know, in any category necessarily. Like in batting average, he's going to help you out. In runs, he should play enough. You know, batting number two, it sounds like, in the Kansas City Royals lineup. Like, he's going to get a ton of plate appearances if he stays healthy. He should be in that 75 to 85 range, so he's not hurting you there. Uh, in RBI, you know, he might hurt you to a tiny bit, but, you know, batting second now instead of leadoff, he has, may have a little bit more opportunity for that. And then he's probably going to get you double-digit home runs in addition to potentially, you know, league-leading stolen bases. And so that type of balance profile – it's really nicely into overall competition and just in general, I think those balanced five category contributors. I mean, he's hurting you in home runs overall, but not like a Billy Hamilton, not like a Malik Smith, not like, you know, uh, some of the stolen base only type guys that you're going to be getting maybe later on in your draft. And so for that reason, I like him a lot. I love Joey Gallo and OBP league. I think he's super underrated. I had him as my 32nd most valuable player overall, not just hitter, but, overall in OBP leagues and I think if you're an OBP he gives you about league average OBP and then he's just he's going to give you close to lead leading home runs RBI you know the runs are going to be there as well and he chips in some stolen bases so I love him a lot in that situation in a standalone league uh, I don't mind Gallo at all I think I would have him in a lot of standalone leagues uh, if I'm lucky enough to do that because I think you know you don't necessarily have to have the same level of balance across your team and you, and you do need to build around Gallo. So, for instance, I do have Gallo in one NFBC league where, you know, there is an overall competition. But, you know, ahead of him, I have Daniel Murphy, Lorenzo Kane, two guys who, who should bat 300. Uh, and then I also have um, Justin Turner after him. And so there's another guy who's going to bat over 300. So I have enough of a batting average cushion in that league, and I have Trout in that league too. So probably four guys who could bat 300. So that makes me feel a little bit more comfortable drafting a Gallo in, a, in an overall type of setup. In a standalone league, I think he gets a huge discount because he is injured. He has multi-position eligibility. I have him as my 34th highest uh, ranked player right now and as a $6 value. So he's $20 player at a $14 ADP. So that's a $6 value that you're getting uh, drafting Joey Gallo at his current ADP um, of 110. How do you feel about him? Yeah, I mean, I, I love him too. I'm definitely the type of player who doesn't stress, you know, winning every category. And I am kind of thinking about this more from like a one league perspective. I think that's how most of our listeners are going to play. They're not too worried about an overall format. I, I would have him ranked behind Merrifield because, like you said, Merrifield has fewer holes in his game. And he delivers in two categories that are a little bit more scarce than the power that Gallo was giving you. Um, with that said, they're back-to-back in my rankings. Merrifield at 7, uh, Gallo at 8 among first basemen. I mean, if anything, they make a great pair together. If you can land Merrifield as a second baseman or an outfielder, Gallo as your first baseman, like that's a nice grouping, kind of like what you were talking about earlier with Gallo plus all those other, you know, good batting average guys. Just have a plan. And I think depending upon how your draft breaks, uh, you might be more willing to take Gallo than Merrifield. Like if you started off with Mike Trout and Starlin Castro and a pitcher, uh, maybe at that point you feel like you have enough stolen bases that you would go after Gallo ahead of Merrifield. And I, I think this stuff, it, you have to be flexible. It has to be more fluid as you're drafting. Last uh, position eligibility question for you, Toby. 
Ryan Braun inside your top 30 first baseman, inside your top 20, uh, where would he land at that position? Uh, Ryan Braun for my first baseman, he would probably be my number um, uh, 12 first baseman, uh, 12 or 13. So I would have him uh, probably after Eric Hosmer. Um, and then, you know, in an average league, I probably would put him ahead of Jake Bowers, um, who I have as my number 12 first baseman. I'm a big uh, Jake Bowers fan. You know, so I'd probably have him up there. I think the great, the thing about Braun, I love him. There was a question that uh, Ryan Bloomfield from Baseball HQ put on Twitter the other day about, like, which player going um, – historically, at least one player from outside the top 195 in ADP returns first-round value in any given year. Uh, and I actually chose Braun as, like, the one guy who I would probably, you know, think of that being most likely – uh, on a per plate appearance basis, he still still steals a ton of bases. He still hits for a lot of power, and he talking about uh, the fact that he's trying to work on lifting his launch angle because he does hit a lot of ground balls. Uh, he was one of the most unlucky hitters between um, uh, expected average and actual batting average. I think he hit in the two sixties, and his expected batting average was in the low two nineties. Uh, last year. So he really is a five category contributor. And so if you're in a league, especially a league with a DL, um, you know, where if he does get injured, which is, which is very likely, you know, he's an older player uh, where you can special on the DL. Especially if you have Brian Braun going where he's going right now, which is around 200 him as, you know, that as Brian Braun plus whichever replacement level player you add to him, add those stats combined over the course of a full season you know, and you're looking at probably a top five first baseman over the course of the full season. And so I like Braun uh, a lot. Um, and he's a guy that I think is probably the most likely guy out of out of anybody if they stay healthy to um, to return value. And obviously that's a big question. Uh, would he be inside your your top uh, 30 first baseman? Yeah, I'd rank him much lower, though. I think he's right around like first baseman number 24, 25, 26. And for me, it is just the age concerns, uh, the fact that he has fallen off a little bit over the past couple of years. Now, with that said, you noted how unlucky he was last year, and um, that's backed up in the BABIP number. He's a career 327 BABIP guy. Last year, his BABIP was 274. Um, maybe that has a little bit to do with age and like declining speed and whatnot, but I think we can anticipate some amount of bounce back there based upon how well he hits the ball. And because, like you said, on a per plate, appearance basis he steals fine so I, I think that that indicates that the speed is still there and, and he was probably just unlucky with the bad bit i don't know for sure but i generally tend to shy away from players like braun though these like age 35 age 36 age 37 type players and i would rather steer towards you know the jake bowers towards the luke voigts and try to capture that upside try to catch the breakout before it happens um with that said, I'm wrong all the time, right? A lot of the times, the boring veteran guys are the ones who deliver. And I like to draft some of those guys, too. Uh, but Braun, in particular, is one that I tend to... I, I almost never own him over the past few seasons. And so, uh, I don't know. Where do you kind of fall on that spectrum in terms of you know playing towards upside versus playing towards you know what we've seen before? Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of it just depends on, on the value that I see. So, like... Uh, I, I'm generally somebody who does draft kind of boring. Like I think a good example this year is like Andrew McCutcheon. Love it. Based on every single projection system, Andrew McCutcheon is like a top 70 player overall. 
but you know he's going around 135 because he's kind of been around a while he used to be a first rounder and he's viewed as having his skills decline considerably when that isn't necessarily the case and so if the skills support that a guy is still good and he's getting a count because he is older then i'm definitely willing to target somebody like that i think you need to have a balance between that and upside because if you draft like the boring guy who you know is going to contribute a certain level and you don't have enough upside in your team well you know that may be good to get you like third you know third or fourth because you've got all these known quantities but at some point in in your team you're going to have to draft a guy who outperforms the expected value that he's that he does in order to you know finish in first place and so i think that's the key is having a having a nice balance in your team of kind of as sure of things as you can expect and then guys that have a lot of upside yeah, and I mean that, and that's really what it's all about—is kind of balancing both sides of that coin, getting some predictable, reliable guys, getting some sources of upside that you believe in, and I mean that's what really makes this game so fun is that we we're basically betting on the guys that we like the most, and it's fun to see how that plays out. Sometimes it doesn't work out all that well, but uh, that that's the game. Um, let's talk about some of the players who we differ on pretty drastically. The first I want to bring up is Eric Hosmer, and when you shared your rankings with me, when I dug in a little bit deeper on Hosmer, I started to second-guess my ranking a little bit. I have him down as my 21st first baseman. For reference, you have him at number 11 at the position, so a 10-spot difference, and... I mean, I went and I looked at his projections. They all peg a nice balanced profile, just like you were talking about. There are no holes in Hosmer's 5x5 five five game, as long as you're, I, I feel, slotting him at your corner infield or your utility spot. I, I probably want more power from my primary first baseman. But again, like maybe that doesn't matter if you're getting the steals that he gives you. If you're getting the batting average that he gives you, you make up that power somewhere else. Maybe in the outfield, maybe at third base. Maybe, you know, somewhere completely different. Maybe you don't care about power that much in general, and you're just trying to win in other categories. These are all reasons why you could pump Eric Hosmer up and why I'm questioning, you know, having him so low. I I think that this first base position is relatively deep, though. And another reason why Hosmer shows up a little bit lower for me is I have some dual eligibility guys kind of packed in. Uh, So I have Reese Hoskins, Whit Merrifield, Travis Shaw, Daniel Murphy, and JT Realmuto all as first base eligible players. And I think that's because that's what they get on Yahoo. And so if you take away those, you know, five or whatever players, then you and I are only off on Hosmer by five spots, right? And so that's why I'm probably going to leave him at 21 in my first base rankings. But I'm definitely having second thoughts about it. And so even with all that said, it feels like you're pretty high on Hosmer. And I'm curious what you like about his profile because there are some things about his game, you know, a lot of people will talk about the contract and that doesn't matter for fantasy baseball, but ground balls, uh, the San Diego lineup, all of that's gotten better with Manny Machado coming in, of course. What do you like about Eric Hosmer? Where do you see the holes in his game? And, you know, how did that result in his ranking for you? Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the things, um, you know, it's interesting, like how players get, you know, underrated, like there are a lot of different ways I think it happens. And I think Hosmer is one of these cases where, you know, in real life baseball, he got a contract that virtually everybody agrees, you know, is not going to return value for the Padres that is, you know, kind of egregious in nature. Um, and I think for that reason, he's actually being undervalued a little bit in, um, you know, in fantasy baseball, obviously he had a tough first year with Padres and a lot of, and actually, I don't know if this is scientifically proven, but you know, like uh, there is, there is the the kind of uh, 
the idea that players struggle in their first year, you know, after a big contract or they struggle to adjust in a new in a new team or something like that. And so maybe that's a little bit. But when I look at the projections, you know, uh, there's he's boring. He's boring as hell, you know, and sometimes there's value in being boring. So the projection I have him for him is 78 runs, 21 home runs, 79 RBI, six stolen bases with a 271 average. That's good for a $15 value. Um, and his ADP right now is is uh, a $10 cost. So he's essentially getting you $5 value, which makes him, you know, one of the the most uh, cost-effective players to draft this year. Just to give you an idea, you know, Jesus Aguilar, who I think a lot of people are on because he was so great last year, you know, the value that he provides is equal to the Hosmer um, right now. Um, and it's right around what Mark, Matt Carpenter gives as well. And that's because, you know, stolen bases are more valuable, at least in the valuation system that I use. And batting average is more valuable too. And so those oftentimes are the two categories that people focus on least. And those are areas where Hosmer, at least particularly in the, first, the context of first baseman, where you have a lot of kind of bad batting averages or not so great batting average, he is he can definitely get there. Like you mentioned, the Manny Machado signing, I think, helps out. Uh, the team is getting better. Um, you know, the, the field, the park is not great for lefties. It, it hurts lefty power a ton. Um, but, you know, Hosmer has always been kind of like a good year, bad year guy. He's one of those weird players that kind of seems to have a good year followed by a bad year. And this should be a good year for him. I'm not banking on that, but I do think that, that we'll see improvement from him over what we saw last year. I kind of strike it up as a year of adjustments um, for him moving to a new team, a new league, and hopefully, you know, with a little less pressure on him in that first in the second year, you know, he can perform like he has in the past. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's like people look at Matt Carpenter's projection. They look at Jesus Aguilar's projections and they see what they would expect to see from a first baseman. They see close to 30 home runs. They see a 250, 260 batting average. And that's par for the course. We've been here before. We're going to keep doing this in fantasy baseball year after year. We're going to draft those guys because we, we want those homers. We want the RBI that are associated with those homers. But what we are missing out on Hosmer with is like we only see that projection for 20 home runs or so. But you don't see that his RBI and run totals are a little more balanced. You know, probably about 80, 85 in each of those categories with that better batting average with a little bit more speed and. I love that you kind of pointed out that when you just plug those numbers into your projections, that it spits out the same dollar value. Because even though it doesn't look like a traditional first baseman, uh, it is valuable in its, in its own right. And you just have to construct your team around that accordingly. Uh, the next player I want to get to is Luke Voigt. And I'm curious why you're buying into the small sample size we had of him in 2018. What, what did you like uh, about what you saw from Luke Voigt? Yeah, he's kind of one of those guys that that surprised me a little bit. Um, go heading into kind of my research, you always have your biases, and I was kind of like, ah, you know, he's a guy he just kind of hit a really good streak, and you know, whatever. I didn't really buy into it, and then I dug a little bit deeper, and you know, uh, so for any player with at least a hundred batted balls in play, uh, Voigt had the number one barrels per plate appearance at twelve four percent. So of anybody who hit 100, 100 balls in play, he was number one. His hard hit rate was at 47%. League average is about 35%. His ground ball percentage was at 35%. League average is about 43%. And his hard drive rate, which is from xstats.org, which uh, couples things based on launch angle and exit velocity, that's kind of the best type of hit. It's like a high line drive, low fly ball. 
attempts to go for extra bases. Um, he was at 23%, which is more than double the league average. And so what I found myself asking is, you know, okay, let's say like any player does that, right? Like what more could I have asked of Luke Voigt to do to show me as a fantasy baseball player that he was legit than what he did over that sample size? Like literally there's pretty much nothing else that he could do better from a batted ball quality standpoint. Now he could make more contact. He could do things like that. But he's in a great situation. You know, the lineup is really deep. I think people have been mentioning all these different guys who the Yankees are going to bring in to play first base. First, it was like Carlos Santana. And then it was, well, they're going to move Miguel Andujar over there when they signed Danny Machado. But the Yankees haven't made any moves in those respects. I think in a lot of ways that tells you that they see Luke Voigt as the starting first baseman, a guy who is a good hitter. And everything that you look at, all of the metrics look like a good hitter. You know, he doesn't make as much contact as you'd like, but he hits for the power. Um, and so I think he's got an opportunity uh, to play every day. I think he's shown us that he can hit the ball really, really well, better than virtually every player in baseball. Does that mean I think he's going to hit like 320 again? No, I think he's going to hit, you know, probably closer. I don't have the projection in front of me. I can get it up really quickly. Um, so he's projected to bat uh, 266. And so going where he's going, if he hits 266 and, you know, if he gets 600 at-bats, even with his current projection, 20 home runs and 468 plate appearances, if he gets to 600 plate appearances, you're looking at mid to high 20s for home runs and you're looking at 80-plus runs in the eye. And so going where he's going right there, I think he could, he could be a huge value. Yeah, and I like him too. Um, again, I, I'm down on him relative to you by seven spots, but factor in those five multi-eligibility guys i'm only two spots lower um, so i still like Voigt to some extent do you care that he put up all of his stats in or i mean virtually all of his stats in august september and october because that is typically when you know roster talent gets a little diluted we start to see worse players you know especially you know worse pitchers um you know guys coming up from the minor leagues do you think that maybe the competition level might have had something to do with his success last year or do those, you know, efficiency metrics you talked about, like, uh, you know, barrels per plate appearance and all that stuff, does that tend to transcend, uh, you know, uh, opponent? Um, how, how does that factor out for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, I mean, you always have to factor that in into September performances when rosters expand and, you know, you have guys and the talent pool is diluted a little bit. Um, I think it goes back to that question for me, which was like, what what did I want Luke Voigt to do? show me that he was worthy of my consideration as a fantasy baseball, right. you know, analyst slash manager, right? Like there really isn't much that he could have done better than what he did. And as long as there aren't like major holes, right? Like, you know, if his contact rate was at 70% and he, his BABIP was at like 450, you know, that's obviously like a very high extreme, but like over small sample sizes, you can have very high BABIPs. Um, and so what I like to look at is just, you know, what were, what were his, um, what were his statistics? And then I'll also look at, you know, his, his expected statistics as well. Uh, I like to use xstats.org, although it's going out of business because, uh, Andrew Perpetua, the guy who runs it, uh, got, uh, he got hired by the Mets, uh, to do consulting there or to work for them. So, uh, this is the last year that it's going to be in existence. So you can even go to expected BA, um, on, uh, on baseball savant, although I don't think it's as good as the xstats.org stuff for this year, but they had him as an expected average at 295. So yes, he got lucky by batting, you know, 322, uh, but he still batted 295 according to, you know, every single ball that he hit, uh, launch angle and exit velocity 
and where other batted balls throughout major league, whether they fell for hits or not. And so in that particular case, he got a little lucky with his home runs. He got a little lucky with his batting average, but it was still really good. And that's about all I can ask for him. You know, if he was going like in the top 100, it'd be a different story. But, you know, going where he's going at his ADP, I think it's at around like 190 or so. There's not much you could ask for a guy to do, guys, whether the count was diluted or not a little bit. Yep, fair enough. Now, the last guy that we really had a big discrepancy on was Pete Alonzo, first baseman for the Mets. And I'll admit, this was just a blind spot for me. I don't know much about Pete Alonzo. I mean, I checked out his projections after this, but you have him as your 28th ranked first baseman. What do you like about Pete Alonzo? And uh, I guess, what do you expect this season from him? Yeah, you know, I think the expectations is the huge question mark. We talked a little bit about like upside versus balance. I think Alonzo is definitely an upside pick at this particular point in time. Alonzo has, you know, pretty much an 80, 80 grade power. Like, he's incredibly powerful. His exit velocity readings, his home runs. He hit a home run yesterday against the Red Sox. Like, you know, was all up on Twitter all over the place. He's been a hit for a ton of power. What I liked about Alonzo, just looking at his minor league profile, you know, I've just started really diving into a little bit more deeply into prospects. Um, And so, you know, with Alonzo, the situation is just one where I thought he was like a high K percentage guy, like, one of these prospects that's a little bit older, um, you know, that hits a ton of home runs, but comes with a lot of strikeout risk. Um, but when I look at, you know, his strikeout rate throughout the minors, it was actually well below league average at every stop, except for, I think, AAA last year. And obviously the competition gets better. He's older. Um, so there's certainly going to be adjustments there. But I think he's a guy that if, if the Mets decide to pull, to bring him up earlier in the season or you know, he wins the uh, first base job outright, you know, in spring training, Alex Cora referred to him as the best hitter uh, that he's seen in spring training so far. Um, you know, if he gets pulled up, I think he's going to hit 30 home runs probably. It's just a matter of, you know, balancing that risk. Um, and I think where he's going around, like, I think 230 or 250 or something like that, I think it's enough reward potential in that risk uh, to take him. Who's your favorite value outside of the top 20 first baseman? I'll go with Ryan Zimmerman, just on pure value. Uh, you know, he's uh, a year removed from having a, an absolutely amazing season, a season that won a lot of people um, their leagues. You know, and last year, the metrics actually weren't all that different. He actually had a higher barrel per plate appearance rate, I believe, in previous years. He had one of the highest exit velocities on line drives and five balls. He was battling injuries throughout the year. So he's the type of guy, he's going around pick 320 right now, who especially if you have a DL, like he's going to be on the DL at some point in time. So you draft him and when you plug him in, I think he's going to return a ton of value. And then, you know, you, you fill in his spot with, you know, some sort of replacement level player. And the combination of those two things is going to bring you tremendous value um, going where he's going. So I'll probably be the guy after, after, after the top 20 um, in terms of the value that they're going to return. I think the guy who could produce the, the highest value and the question is whether he gets the plate appearances or not. Jose Martinez of the Cardinals. I just, you know, right now I don't necessarily see with his defense a direct path to everyday plate appearances, but if he gets that, I think he'll return a ton of value. Yeah, I love Martinez. I really am upset about yeah. how they handled his situation. And I mean, not to say that they shouldn't be trying to improve their defense, but I love having Jose Martinez on my fantasy teams, and it's it sucks that we have to question his playing time going forward. Um, I had two guys listed for my answer to this question. Zimmerman was one of them, so I totally agree with you on him. Like, all the injury risk with him is baked into his cost, so that's not even a factor for me. Uh, the other guy is Brandon Belt, and... 
I'm not super excited about Brandon Belt, but as a corner infielder, as a utility player, I think he's a really nice fit. He has some of that Hosmeritis, that like boring player disease yeah. or stink on him, but we know the plate skills are there. The park stinks, but maybe he gets traded this year. I think that there's just more upside in Belt's profile than you know ADP suggests, and so he would be my choice as an undervalued guy uh, outside the top 20 first baseman. Let's move over to the other corner, third base, and I want to start off with Vlad Guerrero Jr. Uh, how much should drafters be concerned about this new oblique injury uh, that was reported recently? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really hard to tell. People have been joking about how, like, the amount of time that he's scheduled to miss is, you know, right when he's done rehabbing will be right about when the Blue Jays would have wanted to call him up anyways to avoid the service time stuff. I'm not really sure how much stock to put in it. I do think that, you know, obviously, like, you know, the body isn't great, you know, uh, so I don't know how much of a factor that plays into it. Obviously, he got injured a little bit last year uh, as well. Uh, and so there is starting to be a little bit of a trend in the injury. Um, so I think you drop it, you drop his ADP a little bit because it's a it's, you know, the playing time. Maybe this drop pushes him back a little bit in playing time. You know, I, I'm one of the guys who thinks when he plays, he's going to be one of the best hitters in baseball. I mean, projections already have him. Over a 300 batting average, uh, 20 plus home runs. They sat. They have him 45th or something like that in terms of his overall uh, rank. And so, you know, from a hitter standpoint, so I think he's going to be really good when he plays. I'm not putting too much stock into it, but it certainly dropped me. Maybe you know from from getting him at ADP of around pick 45 now, maybe dropping him into the more 55, 60 range, uh, just because it does it, it add that little bit of little bit of risk for him. Um, how, how about you? How do you? How comfortable are you with Guerrero? I'm not super comfortable, just because I don't know how much they might jerk around his playing time. Uh, you know, w- dealing with the, the service time issues, uh, this injury adds to that concern uh, to some extent. And I feel like a lot of my early research into you know just kind of seeing where the market was at on him was the discussion came down to why would you draft Vlad where he's going when you could draft Anthony Rendon later and. I, I tend to fall on the Rendon side of that sort of argument. Like, we've seen Rendon do it before. But, yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm intrigued by Guerrero. I just, I'm not the type of player who usually pays top dollar for prospects like this, even if they're as can't miss as Vlad Jr. is. Um, which Toronto infielders do you think stand to lose the most playing time once Vlad is called up? Because I, I think that there is opportunity to find value on that Blue Jays team. Vlad can't displace all of them, but I think that there are some concerns there. Do you have a strong opinion there about, I mean, Brandon Drury, I think, is slated to be their third baseman to start the year. We know he's more of a utility-type player anyway, so he's the obvious loser. But we talked about how volume is changing for pitchers. I think volume is changing for hitters now, too, uh, as managers get a little bit more creative with how they use pinch hitters, how they use uh, you know defensive alignments you know later in games. And I, I think we could see a situation where, because these infielders are moving around, because we're still trying to get Brandon Drury at bats, like maybe Freddie Galvis gets fewer at bats from shortstop. Maybe uh, you know second base gets shake, shaken up a little bit for the Blue Jays. Um, how do you see the situation affecting the other infielders there in Toronto? Yeah, you know, I think it definitely will. I think once they call up Vlad, he's obviously going to play every day. They wouldn't just for the sake of his development, um, you know, call him up if they weren't going to do that. You know, and his position will will most likely be third base. So as you mentioned, Drury, I think, has the most to lose. Um, you know, but if they try to get Drury uh, at-bats or, you know, he's playing well, you know, I think you have Lourdes Gurriel, who obviously I think he has shortstop second base 
eligibility, maybe even outfield. From everything I've heard, he's very bad defensively, and he probably projects as an outfielder. So he may be able to move around a little bit as well. You mentioned Freddie Galvis. You know, I don't think he's a huge part of their future moving forward. He's not bad. He's a good defensive shortstop. But, you know, I don't think he's necessarily a critical part of their future. And so I don't think he's going to stand in the way in terms of playing time. Uh, Devin Travis is obviously a guy who, you know, a lot of folks, including myself, had a lot of hopes for, who I think is also would also, you know, suffer a little bit uh, when that happens. And then there's always first base. Justin Smoke is, is is a solid guy. He's one of my top values at first base. I'm a guy I've found myself with a lot uh, of shares of so far this year just because of where he's going in drafts and what he can provide. But, you know, I think he's in the last year of a, of a contract. And so possibility that he may, um, you know, uh, that, that he's not a part of the future, or that he gets traded. Uh, Kendris Morales is obviously manning DH and first base occasionally. So I think it's just going to be musical chairs. It'll affect everybody a little bit. If I were to guess who would impact the most, um, you know, maybe Galvis just because, um, you know, obviously Drury. But outside of that, maybe Galvis just because I don't necessarily see him being a key part of the Blue Jays' future like some of these younger guys are. Um, does that align with kind of what you, you think, too? Yep, I agree, because I think that they can move Guriel over to shortstop on occasion. They can plug in Devon Travis, you know, if and when he's healthy. Man, he's another one of those guys. I, I'm with you on I, – I was a Travis truther for quite some time, and uh, the, the bloom is off that rose for me, unfortunately. I, I'm probably done with him. Um, but I also think that you mentioned Morales. Uh, their outfield is a little crowded, too, um, with Teoscar Hernandez slated to come off the bench, which just seems wrong. Like, they're, they just have a lot of guys, and it doesn't seem like they're going to be enough at-bats to go around. And I think – my overall takeaway from this whole situation is that once Vlad gets called up, all these guys are going to lose some amount of value, and we need to be mindful of not paying too much for that when we're drafting them, especially because I feel like our our tendency, our typical bias with the Blue Jays is to inflate them as hitter values based upon the park they play in. and. Yeah. I don't know if we should be doing that because the playing time concerns are going to push back against that to some extent. Um, let's get into some of the other guys we disagree on a little heavier. Um, I know you're not a Chris Bryant guy, and I am a Chris Bryant guy, and so I'm curious why you're as low on him as you are because he's the cheapest he's been since breaking out. Um, I think that the projections for him look similar to those of the first base that we talked about earlier, like Anthony Rizzo, Paul Goldschmidt. Um, the speed is declining for Brian. I'll admit that he, he might be closer to the Rizzo end of that spectrum than the Freeman or Goldschmidt end, but I still see a higher run projection. I still see a high RBI projection. The batting average should be fine. We know the homers are going to be there with Brian. Why is he so much farther down for you than he is for me? Yeah, you know, I've kind of been uh, whatever the opposite of a truther is with Chris Bryant. I've kind of been that. Um, I've been down on him for the last couple years. Um, I think part of it is just from an environmental perspective. I see his batted ball profile and nothing really jumps out to me. If you take a look at like the StatCast data and, um, you know, the hard hit rate, uh, things of that nature, it doesn't really jump out. Like his, he has a below league average hard hit rate in the last two years. You know, his ground ball percentage is also been higher the last two years. Um, you know, it got better last year, but, you know, it went all the way up to 37.7% in 2017. And he was really seemed to be exchanging uh, more contact for the quality of contact that he was making. And then there's also like my love of expected stats. So when you look at his expected stats over the last couple of years, like the batting average is, is okay, but it's not uh, terrific. 
you know, 271 expected average last year, 283 in 2017, which isn't bad, 272 in the year that he hit 292, 252 in, in his you know, MVP season, or actually, no, uh, 272 in his, his MVP season. So the batting average isn't great. Uh, the stolen bases, as you mentioned, are drying up. Like he's not attempting to steal that much, and he's also not very uh, – he's actually not slow, but um, you know, he just hasn't been very good at it uh, either. And so, you know, stolen bases and batting average are key for me as I'm thinking about where I'm going to draft guys. And then I take a look at his uh, his power metrics. And, um, you know, again, like the stack has data data doesn't uh, jump out uh, at you necessarily. Like, I don't think um, the hard hit uh, fly ball rate, the hard hit pulled fly ball rate don't really jump out at you either. You know, for, and since last year, he was obviously struggling with injuries. But, you know, in 457 plate appearances, so essentially three quarters of a of a full season, he only had 16.1 expected home runs on the 13 home runs that he hit. So over the course of a full season, you know, you're looking at that being 20 home runs over 600 plate appearances right there. So I have questions about the power. And again, like they're not something, you know, the power isn't necessarily, I don't feel better about it after diving into the numbers. And so, you know, I think he's in a good lineup. I think he's a fine player, um, but I just don't see the type of, you know, five category or even four category contribution that where he's going in drafts that I want to be going after. And I don't see the type of power metrics, you know, necessarily that I want to see. Um, so I have them in front of me now. So his like hard hit fly ball rate is at 42.2% last year, which is, you know, fine. Um, it's better than league average, but it's not elite. His hard hit pulled fly ball rate is right around league average at 32.6%. Barrel per plate appearance last year was 5.9% which is better than the average, but not elite. And then it was 6.2% in 2017. So folks who think like, you know, oh, like what was just last year, he was injured. It's actually like two years now that we have pretty bad, for at least a power hitter, uh, batted ball data to go for on him. So I'm probably the low man uh, on Bryant. Um, I'm steering clear of him. I just don't, I just don't love him. Yeah, so the thing for me with Chris Bryan, I still think he's like a second round level player. Um, I just look back at the previous track record, like I look at 2015 to 2017, uh, 26 homers, 39 homers, 29 homers. Now that 2016 39 number is probably a little juiced ball biased, uh, so I, I need to kind of wrap my brain around that a little bit better. But I see that number, and I'm like, man, he's got the power; he can do it. And I don't know. I tend to just be a sucker for guys uh, who take walks. Uh, the on-base percentage that Bryant gives you is elite. His, his BABIP is really high for uh, you know a corner infielder, career 345. So I don't know. It seems like there's something that he's doing right just in terms of hitting, even if the batted ball data doesn't necessarily back that up. But again, I'm coming at this from kind of a, a layman's perspective. And so it'll be curious for me to see where we meet you know, in 2019, like what end of the spectrum we come out on. Uh, the next guy I want to ask you about is Max Muncy. And you have him a number of picks lower than me, about 10 spots. Uh, I have him all the way up at third baseman number 11, and I'm, I'm a little aggressive with him, and that might be some on-base bias from me because most of the leagues I play in use on-base, but I'm curious what the big difference you see between Muncy and Matt Chapman is because I look at their projections. They're relatively similar. Yes, Chapman is slated to get more plate appearances, and so that's going to help his counting stats out, but in terms of the power, in terms of the, the ratios and whatnot, like I feel like Muncy isn't... 10 spots behind uh, Matt Chapman or or whatever. And I guess for you, he's not that far. He's only four spots behind, but they feel like similar players to me. Do you agree? Yes and no. I mean, I think Muncy, uh, it pains me to do this because, you know, I, I Mac Muncy, Mac Muncy, Max Muncy helped me win some leagues last year. 
Um, I, I picked him up pretty early in May, I think, um, and, you know, reaped the benefits of just the, the run that he went on where he was looking really, really good. My major concerns with Muncie is, you know, whereas Chapman has really improved his in-zone contact rate and his contact overall to help boost up that batting average, Muncie went through a stretch uh, towards the end of last year uh, where he really struggled for contact. So one of the things that I like to look at are rolling average graphs. They're available on fan graphs, and they essentially tell you over, you know, like a 40-game span how somebody's doing in different statistical categories. And when you look at Max Muncy's in-zone contact rate, you know, it gets from a better-than-league average in July, and then it just goes all the way downhill to more than 10% worse than league average at 74.7%, which is a huge red flag for me because if you're not making contact, it limits you know, how good of a batting average you can have, obviously, and you're not putting balls in play. And then OBP league, it's different for Muncie because he's got really, really nice plate discipline. Uh, it did start to improve towards the end of last year. We were back up at about 80%. I think that's enough combined with, you know, the fact that he's likely to be pl- platooned by the Dodgers. You know, so if you play in weekly leagues or, you know, leagues where you change out lineups in the middle of the week, um, it can make him a hard guy to own because you kind of need to manage, you know, which weeks you have him in, which you don't. You know, a lot of times there's changes the week of from a righty to a lefty or a lefty to a righty. And so it just makes it really difficult from a, a lineup management perspective. Uh, if you're in a daily league, I think you get some, some value boost there. I believe in the power. You know, I don't know if he's going to replicate what he did last year because I think it's the best case scenario. But I think that, you know, there's enough concerns for me with batting average lack of speed, the contact that I just don't, I'm not going to pay uh, pay that high of a price for Muncie. Uh, Chapman is a guy that I actually, you know, I want to like a lot more. I don't see any like fatal flaws. His contact rate improved throughout the course of the season. He was really good. I think the projections don't necessarily see that. They're a little slower to adjust uh, to the increase in in-zone contact rate for Matt Chapman. So I like that a lot. The power was a little bit lower than I had anticipated, but he's in a very good A's lineup. So probably should value um, Chapman a, a little bit higher, but, um, you know, it's just hard. There's there's a good set of third basemen ahead of him in, in rankings, and so I haven't found myself getting a lot of either one of those two. Uh, is there, do you have one that you – that you uh, well, you obviously prefer because your, your rankings are higher on one than the other, but um, how do you feel about those two guys? I mean, they're pretty interchangeable to me, and I, I probably will bump Muncie down based upon some of the stuff you just talked about. Um, again, this is why you're on the show is to kind of help me understand some of the the underlying statistics behind what you know we see in the roto stat lines. Uh, but I, I like both of them. I think that they both deliver a certain you know type of production, like you said, good power numbers, but not going to help you much in average, not going to help you much in speed. Uh, so they're somewhat interchangeable to me uh, in and on base format i might prefer muncie a little bit more just based upon his walk rate but i don't know they're, they're pretty close and i think that this is an interesting tier of third baseman where between like third baseman 12 and 20 there are a lot of different types of profiles right like you could go after one of these kind of big power low average guys you could go after justin turner who has more modest power but should hit for a really good average and you can take some, you know, bounce back risks with, you know, Josh Donaldson. And, and if he hits, you know, he's giving you everything uh, except for speed. So uh, I think that there are a lot of different ways you can go at the third base position. With that said, 
because I'm such a big Chris Bryant fan, like most of my drafts, I usually just end up with him or mm. or some someone else a little bit higher. Like I like taking Bregman and Machado and Arenado and Rendon at the top of drafts. So usually these guys are only getting plugged in as a corner infielder. And so it's more about the stat profile relative to my needs at the time. So if I need an average guy, I go for Justin Turner. If I want power, I go for Chapman or Muncie or something like that. So it's, it's a pretty tight tier for me. Uh, I want to dig to a much lower tier here and talk about Hunter <laughs> Hunter Dozier, who uh, plays for the Royals. I have him listed as uh, first base, third base, and outfield eligible. Uh, again, that's coming from Fantasy Pros, so I think they amalgamate a lot of different sites there. And so check your league settings before you assume Dozier has uh, all these eligibilities. With that said, I, I just I see the projections, and they are pretty unkind. And so I'm wondering what I'm missing, why you, I mean, you don't have him ranked super high as your 31st first baseman, but when I did my rankings, he actually came out as like 56 among third basemen. So <laughs> I have him like way, way lower uh, because I see that batting average drain. And I just, I, I run away from that. Uh, that's really as simple as it is for me with Dozier, but am I missing anything? What do you like about him? Yeah. You know, um, it, I don't know if Dozier is really my 30th ranked third, ba- third baseman. I just kind of put him in there because he's kind of one of my flag guys in the sense that he's a guy that I want to own in um, as many leagues as possible. Uh, one of the things is I think like, you know, fantasy value is a combination of skills and it's a combination of opportunity. I think yep. Dozier is going to have opportunity. I think he's going to play um, pretty much every day in the Royals lineup. And especially with Sal Perez getting injured, I can see him hitting like maybe fifth or sixth and having not a ton of RBI opportunities, but getting a decent number of plate appearances and a decent number of RBIs and having the opportunity to move up if he does well. But one of the things that I like to do too is kind of see how players progress as they come up into major leagues and whether there are improvements as they adjust and pitchers adjust. And I really liked what I saw from Hunter Dozier towards the end of last year. And one of the places where I think you can get value is by looking at underlying skills and identifying people that are going to break out before they actually break out. Now, I don't think... I'm not going to go out and project that Dozier is going to be like a top 10 third baseman or anything like that. But what I will say is that the skills that I like to look out for him are all pretty good. The last year, his in zone contact rate overall for the season was at 88.7%. That is better than league average by about 3%. So he makes contact on pitches inside the zone over the last 40 games, which again is a September sample size. So the count pool is a little bit diluted. His Z contact was at 92.2%, which is elite. Like that's like Jose Ramirez level of in-zone contact. So that's something that stands out to me as being uh, really nice. Hard hit rate overall for the year was at 44.9%, so 10% better than league average. And over the last 40 games, it was at 47.8%, so even better than it was before. And that would put him, and it did put him, among the league leaders in September for hard hit rate. His fly ball percentage uh, with uh, league average being, you know, about 43%. Um, it was at 36.6% uh, for uh, the overall, for uh, the season. Um, and it was at 33.9%. So it actually went down, but his ground ball percentage was at 40% for the season. So it was actually lower than league average. So his line drive rate was up, but he was hitting the ball in the air. When we look at his barrels per plate appearance last year, it was at 7%. So 2.2% better than league average and better than Bryce Harper and Chris Bryant. I think he's better than either of those. And then his hard drive rate, according to XStat, so that's, again, that ideal launch angles and exit velocity, 
it was at 16.5% for the season, 10.8% is the average. You have a combination of both, you know, contact and quality contact that I love to see. So where he's going right now in drafts, I think he's now in the low 400s um, with dual position eligibility at first base and third base in all leagues and then first base, third base, and outfields in some. Like, I think he's a really good guy to have on your res- as a reserve on your team. And I think he's going to get plate appearances. And, you know, if he can if he can turn a corner, I think there's the possibility that you can get a lot of value out of that profile. So why do you think he is so bad in the batting average department here? Not only just in how he performed last year and the projections, but like you look at his his minor league numbers and he struck out a ton there as well. Is he just chasing too much stuff outside of the zone? Is that where his problem lies, you think? You know, his his, uh, his base rate, I believe, isn't isn't great. Um, I don't have it in front of me. Um, let's see, O-swing. Yeah, it's not great. It's uh, close to 40%. So managing the zone is definitely uh, is definitely an issue for him. Uh, so last year, his um, he hit 229. His expected average was 249. Uh, and then he had the 10.3 home runs uh, on 11, or 11 home runs on 10.3 expected home runs. And that was in 388 plate appearances. You can see there where, you know, maybe you get a guy who can hit, you know, 250. Uh, if the power can improve slightly, you know, who can get you 20 home runs. And then if he's in the right place in the batting order, can get you like maybe 80 runs for RBI. So, so it's not great. Um, and, you know, the thing that I like to, that I, that I think is important for now, like when all of this technology and data is available, is that some guys can just make that turn. And so that's why I really like to look at the skills. Like Muncy, the reason why I got Muncy in May was because I saw that he had borderline elite uh, barrels per plate appearance. He had a very good O swing, you know, which is different from Dozier. And he was making a lot of contact inside the zone, and he was hitting the ball in the air a lot. Like that combination of things, even though he didn't have pedigree and he came out of nowhere, that was enough for me to take a look. And that's kind of where Dozier comes in where, you know, he did have a little bit of pedigree as a prospect, but – you know, I'm starting to see some skills consolidating that I really, really like. And so he's a guy where maybe he's one thing away from really turning that corner and making it click, and maybe that is his uh, plate discipline. So maybe that's something that he works on in the off season, and, you know, that improves a little bit, and then, and then you see, you know, him really taking off. And so, you know, w- w- if it's going to happen, like I wouldn't project it to happen, but he's somebody that I'm willing to take a risk. Right, and you're not paying a high price. You have you have him outside yep. your top 30 third baseman, so he's a, a flyer you take at the end of the draft. You see if he puts it together in that first month or so or that first you know two weeks or whatever, and if you need to cut bait, you do that. I, I think that he's an interesting player because of you know all those stats you mentioned, but also because of how cheap he is. Um, it, it is funny to me that like he had such great you know skills in terms of hitting balls in the zone, but just... I don't know. You would think if that was the case that he'd be able to identify like what the zone is yeah. and, and, you know, appropriately adjust and like not swing at so much stuff out of the zone. Anyway, like really fascinating player. I can't wait to see, uh, you know, if he can kind of turn things around and put things together in 2019. Um, I want to go to a more hyped prospect next. And this is Nick Senzel of the twin or of the reds. And, you didn't have him listed in your rankings, but he does have third base eligibility. That's where he played in the minors. He's going to gain eligibility in the majors when he comes up, either at outfield, maybe second base, or somewhere else. Uh, what do you make of Nick Senzel? Uh, would he be inside your top 20 third baseman? Would he be higher? Um, I have him at number 24, just because playing time is still a concern. Uh, but I'm curious what you think about Senzel and his outlook for this season. Yeah, you know, I don't know if I'd have him in my top 20. 
Um, I would probably have him at uh, 22. I'd probably have him between Yuli Gurriel and uh, Michael Franco uh, because I do think that Senzel, like if you take a look at his projection, you know, he, he's projected to lose value, but that's only based on plate appearances. Like if you give him 600 plate appearances, you know, you're looking at a guy who could contribute, uh, you know, close to 20 home runs, close to 15 stolen bases, you know, uh, 75 to 80 runs in RBI with a decent batting average. Like that would be incredibly valuable. And so I think part of it, you know, for for um, I don't have him in third base and second base. I think I have him. What do I have him ranked? I have him ranked as my 17th second baseman because I think the Reds do want to bring him up. You know, I think they're trying to compete this year with the moves that they've done and they want to field the best team. And so part of it is a question mark of like where he plays. Right, you have Scooter Gannett or Jeanette at second base. Um, at third base, you have Eugenio Suarez uh, in the outfield. You already have a crowded outfield as it is. So. You know, I think he's most likely to play outfield and most likely to take over for Scott Schebler uh, there in center field, uh, since Schebler is not great defensively, as far as I remember. And you know, even offensively, he's a little bit limited. He's got some pop, but um, I think he's overall limited. So I could see him playing outfield and having that dual eligibility, making him really, really valuable. I just think third base, like you know, a guy like Yuli Gurriel, for instance, like he's a guy who's in a great lineup with Houston. He's going to get everyday at-bats. He's going to have a high batting average, which is very rare for guys who are going late. You know, he's got a little bit of an uptick in power because he's hitting more fly balls. He's going to get a decent amount of RBIs because he's probably going to bat like fifth, sixth in the lineup there. Uh, So, you know, I have a hard time putting him in front of a guy like that who has guaranteed playing time and a lot fewer question marks. But once you start to have question marks like a guy like Michael Franco, I feel, feel fine putting him up there. So he'd probably be like my number 21 uh, 22 uh, third baseman, and then he's my 17th ranked. Nice, yeah. Um, so who are some of your other favorite values outside of the top 20 at this position? Like, let's leave Senzel, Gurriel, and Dozier out of it because we've already talked about them. Are there any other guys you like at that position outside the top 20? Uh, does nobody count? No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's, it's ugly. The guys that I like that are going later, I actually, I, I don't like third base either. Um, I think that, like, there's a lot of kind of top end stuff. There's a lot of blah in the middle and then there's some late round values the guys that i like going uh, outside of the top 20 i like ask Jubal cabrera i think he has full-time plate appearances with rangers you know what you're going to get and that multi-position eligibility is incredibly valuable if you have a short bench i like wilmer flores um a lot uh, i believe he has third base right now and he's going to get a uh, second base or first base eligibility um uh, moving forward, I like him a lot. I think he's going to get close to everyday plate appearances uh, with the Diamondbacks, and I think he's a really good hitter. Uh, so I like him. I like Heimer Candelario of the Tigers. Uh, he's a guy who struggled through injuries last year, but right before he got injured, he was really putting it together. Uh, good patience, plate discipline, making contact, hitting the ball hard, hitting the ball in the air. And then he got injured and it kind of fell apart. But I think he's going to play every day for the Tigers, and he's going to bat either – at the top of the lineup or in the middle of the lineup. And so I like him a lot right there. We talked about Dozier already. Those are kind of the guys that I think represent values for me going late. How about you? Are there guys that you like who are, who are going later that you're kind of targeting later? In yeah, I like Candelario. Um, and if you're really, really scraping the bottom of the barrel and going after budget options, I think Evan Longoria is fine. Like he has the track record of production, like not unlike someone – 
uh, like Brandon Belt on his own team, or even he's not the same level of player as Ryan Braun, but just that kind of predictability of stats from Longoria I think could be good as long as he's healthy. The park's not great, but you know, again, if you're getting consistent playing time, and if you're looking at you know a very low end player at his position, I think that Longoria is fine. Um, kind of along the same lines, Brian Anderson from Miami is interesting. Uh, he has dual eligibility in some spots, third base and outfield, um, and then. One guy who I just picked in one of the, uh, those Tracks 10 best ball drafts, where, and those are points-based, admittedly, uh, is Yolmer mm-hmm. Sanchez of the White Sox. And just for the at-bats, like uh, a guy who's going to play. So if you're an AL only or if you're doing like a best ball or points league, I think just chasing those volume guys like Yolmer Sanchez uh, are interesting. The ones who are, are really intriguing to me are the Diamondbacks options, um, Eduardo Escobar and Jake Lamb. Like I legit like Escobar uh, this season. I didn't think I would. Like, he's not a player I've ever liked before. But if you look at where he's being drafted, but then you look at where he's slated to bat in the Diamondbacks lineup, like, I think Roster Resource has him at second in that order. I I just think if he can hold on to that playing time, uh, there's a lot of opportunity for him to produce good counting stats, uh, even if, like, the home runs aren't elite or the stolen bases aren't elite. I just think he's a well-rounded enough player to really return value for where he's going. Lamb is the big question mark for me because he's been such an up-and-down player. Uh, We don't know if he's going to be able to play full-time. He hasn't really proven that ability uh, just because he can't hit lefties. Um, What do you think about Lamb? Like, Are you willing to draft him this season, or is it format-dependent? Like, What's your take on him? Yeah, you know, I I used to love Jake Lamb. I think in uh, in 2017, um, you know, I was all over him as like a guy that I really, really liked. Um, I'm kind of soured a little bit on Lamb. I think, number one, like he's out of Chase Field. Or, I mean, he's in Chase Field, but they have the humidor now, and that really impacted offensive production last year. Yep. And I think that will impact him a good good amount in terms of power because his power was not never overwhelming. And so, you know, it moves from kind of like mid-20s, maybe lower 20s, high teens for me. Um, and then, like you mentioned, I think the platoon splits like is a huge issue for him. In weekly leagues, I just don't think he's necessarily that viable. In daily leagues where you can just pat him against righties, I think he's great. But, like, he is so bad against lefties that it really makes it challenging to roster him. You have any type of limitation of space, and you play in, like, a weekly or biweekly roster changes. So I'm not that interested in him. I took a look a little bit more in depth at Eduardo Escobar as you were talking, and, you know, the power looks legit, 26.9 expected home runs on 23 home runs, a decent batting average. So that's a good shout right there. Um, maybe I should uh, move him up a little bit uh, in mine. Um, and I also like that Evan Longoria shout uh, there. I actually added him. I've updated my rankings as we discussed or as we talked. Uh, I put him as my 30th third baseman. I moved Hunter Dozier down to 31 because he actually, in my in my valuations, it returns the most value uh, of any third baseman, I believe. There are a couple of really good shouts there that I like a lot. Yeah, third base is super interesting because there are some of these just kind of boring guys at the bottom, uh, and I just, I don't know, I'm not super excited to own many of them, but uh, at the same time, sometimes drafts break in a way where you have to, you know, kind of scrape the bottom of the barrel. Um, Yeah, those splits for Jake Lamb are just, I don't know, they're egregious, and and you mentioned how, like, it's, it's really bad in a weekly league or something like that. I think they're even... Like that sort of split is still harmful in a daily league too, because the way baseball is changing, the way that teams are utilizing their bullpens now, like a guy like Lamb might only get two at bats or three at bats in a game, even if a righty is starting. 
teams are yanking their starters sooner, and that could mean getting to a left a lefty earlier to make Lamb, you know, more of a liability. I think that you know the more that baseball kind of gets modernized in that way, the more these heavy platoon split guys are going to fall off. So uh, I'm curious to see how that plays out and if Lamb can maybe turn it around. I mean, at this point, we haven't seen him put that together, but I, I just I, I'm not confident that he'll be able to do it moving forward, and I think that that makes him a risk to draft uh, outside of. Uh, you know, maybe very specific daily formats. I, I The real answer is probably just to use them in DFS. Um, let's get to second base. And we talked about my blind spot with Pete Alonzo on the Mets earlier. I have another blind spot at uh, second base for the Mets, and that's Jeff McNeil. Uh, this kid who came up last year really played gangbusters in a short sample. It looked like he might have trouble finding playing time this year, but now that Jed Lowry is dinged up, Todd Frazier is almost always hurt. Uh, I, I think that McNeil is more interesting. I probably need to move him up my rankings, but you know, those guys, Lowry and Frazier are going to get healthy at some point. Do we need to be concerned about McNeil's playing time? Uh, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's definitely a concern. Um, you know, the, the big thing for me with McNeil is um, I don't have him uh, that high. I think there's a lot of people in the industry who really like him, some really sharp people. So I should probably be reconsidering it too. I have him at 24. I think there's, some upside in terms of the batting average, but I worry a little bit about the overall quality of contact that he makes. Um, you know, he, he did hit uh, 329 last year in a small sample, uh, but his expected average over that period was 288. So it's not the elite average that you necessarily may be expecting based on the, the small sample size. He has excellent contact skills, which are critical for uh, obviously uh, having a high batting average, but you know, when you look at some of the underlying um, batted ball quality metrics, they're not great. So for instance, um, you know, one of the things that I like to do that I talk about a lot about on our, the player profiles is xpets.org has uh, batted ball types broken down into six categories, uh, dribblers, ground balls, line drives, hard drives, fly balls, and pop-ups. And they're essentially, you know, the types of batted balls that you'll see and being a little bit more precise than this ground ball, uh, fly ball, and line drive. So, like, is it a good ground ball versus a bad ground ball, uh, a good fly ball versus a bad fly ball? You know, McNeil rated out very poorly on hard drive rate, which is kind of the really nice quality batted ball. He only had 7.3% of hard drives. Um, He also hit a bunch of pop-ups. Um, and uh, his dribbler percentage was about league average too. So like not a great quality uh, of contact and his hard hit rate uh, dipped really, really uh, hard toward the end of last year. And so obviously like his profile isn't necessarily one that really, really needs a good hard hit rate, but it was 30.2% uh, over the course of the full uh, season. And then over his uh, last 40 games, um, it was at 27.2%, so very low. Um, you know, he doesn't necessarily uh, steal a ton of bases. Or actually, he, he did have a decent amount of, of, of stolen bases last year at seven. Um, so maybe I'm just making that up. Maybe I do need to push him up a little bit. Oh, well, he had seven with the Mets, but, you know, in, in previous years in the minors, his his max was six um, before since 2015. So, you know, maybe it was that I, I saw that the speed – didn't look that great. So I think he's okay. He's a good guy to take kind of a, a stab at late in drafts maybe, but I don't have super high expectations like some people do. Uh, what's your read on him? 
Totally agree. It seems like the hitting skills are there to some extent, and I think, if anything, I just need to move him up on the sake of, or for the sake of his upside, you know, if he manages to get that full-time role. But I'm not going to be aggressively targeting him or anything. I mean, second base is kind of interesting. We didn't really differ that much on most of these guys. Like, some two-spot differences, three-spot differences, four-spot, five-spot, and, like, if, if we're only off by that much, it seems like maybe we have the second base position figured out, you know, fingers crossed. Uh, <laughs> but a couple guys we did stand out on. Um, the first is Brian Dozier. Uh, you have him at second baseman number 13. I have him down in the mid-20s, and I'm curious why you're buying the bounce back for for Dozier, Brian Dozier this time. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with Dozier last year, he did have a knee injury that seemed to bother him a lot. I mean, in the two previous seasons, he was one of the best uh best second baseman in the game. I mean, you know, providing a power and speed combo, that was really nice. Even last year, you know, you lost value on him because of where you drafted him, but he still had 21 home runs uh, and 12 stolen bases. I mentioned that his expected average was actually 229. There was a little bit of lack of luck there, and he's got a history in the last two years of, you know, 268, 271. Uh, The 240 BABIP is a little bit of an anomaly. And I talked that up a lot to, um, to the knee injury, when you look at the underlying skills, like his in-zone contact was actually up 2% from previous year, as was overall contact rate. He actually had better plate discipline than any previous year in his career. His hard hit rate was also at its highest rate uh, of any over the course of the full year at 37.3%, um, although you know the overall league rate was also up. And so it seems like a guy who was pretty much doing what he normally does um, year in and year out except I think the injury may have taken away a little bit of that oomph. And so maybe he was hitting, you know, the same number of fly balls as he was in previous years, but he just couldn't get the same type of exit velocity on it. You know, whatever it was, like, I think he's, he's a year older. And so I'm going to, I'm going to knock him back a little bit there. He's in a new uh, league. He's in a new place. And I think that's always like hard to, to adjust to. And so for that reason, I have him as far down as I do. Uh, but I do think that there could be a decent amount of, you know, power, speed, uh, bounce back. And I think the Nationals lineup is better than people give it credit for. Yeah, I'm looking at his numbers now and I need to move him up. Like his walk rate was the same. His cape rate was the same over the past two years. The power did dip. Like he, he lost a lot of home runs. His ISO dropped significantly between 2017, 2018. And that BABIP really fell, like you said, 240 BABIP in 2018. So I think this is a good spot to at least prime yourself for some level of bounce back. And I, I buried him too far. Putting him at 26th in my rankings was was too low. I'm going to have to make a note to to move Dozier up. Now, another guy that we differ on is Luis Urias uh, of the Padres. And it seems like he's going to play every day there. Uh, we've talked about how that lineup is improving to some extent. But I, I'm a little worried when I look at his projections, when I look at his stat profile, that maybe he's just kind of one of those hollow batting average guys. And in certain team constructions, there's a place for that. But uh, I I might be too high on him. What do you think about Urias? Yeah, I mean, I think the reason why I even have him in my top 30 is because of the playing time. I think the playing time is going to be there. And if there is a tool that I'm willing to bet on, I think it is uh, the hit tool. Um, and so, you know, like the bat has him at a 275 batting average, 10 home runs, 66 runs, 51 RBI, seven stolen bases. You know, that's not terrible. And I think the options are really bad uh, late on second base. I think the end of second base is one of the ugliest positions, I think, uh, that's out there. And so it's more just like here's a young guy who came in with with a decent amount of prospect pedigree. He's got a high hit tool. 
doesn't necessarily have, you know, the power. Uh, we'll steal, you know, a, a few bases here and there. But I think he's going to get plate appearances, and he doesn't strike out a ton. I think the batting average might be decent. And then I always would rather bet on a guy like that with a hit tool to kind of take that next step uh, than, than some of the other tools, right? Like if, if a guy comes in with kind of just raw power um, and strikes out a ton, like I'm less likely to bet on that type of profile than I am a guy who is going to make a decent amount of contact, um, put the ball in play, and obviously has like some sort of good hand-eye coordination. And so, you know, in that particular case, we've seen some guys who came in with those types of profiles, like maybe a Jose Ramirez and a Francisco Lindor. Those are obviously like, I'm not saying Urias is going to do that. <laughs> I'm saying like that type of profile, I think with the right type of instruction, I can maybe take that next step. And I'm willing to just take a flyer on him at, at my 30th second base. So what other guys at the lower ends of the second base spectrum do you like? Because like you said, it's kind of an ugly position. I do like to have someone from the top 8 to 10 locked up uh, You know, early on in my drafts for the most part. I'm usually not paying up for Altuve at the top, but yeah. I will buy Travis Shaw, uh, Daniel Murphy, Rugnet Odor. I, I'm, I'm not as low on Glaver Torres as other folks. So like, there are a lot of kind of mid-tier guys I like, but if you are looking for somebody who you know, maybe could fill your middle infield position or give you some depth in like a, a best ball, like 40 round or, or draft and hold type of situation. Like which second baseman from the lower end are you looking at as guys that you like? Yeah. I mean, the, um, the guy I love is Adam Frazier of the pirates. Um, he is supposed to bat lead off. He's supposed to play every day. Um, if you believe reports, there are some hints that, you know, maybe he might be platooned against lefties, but uh, he doesn't seem to have a ton of competition for the second base job. Uh, he came back from the minors last year and seemed to be an absolutely um, different player. Um, his home hard hit fly ball rate uh, went through the roof. Um, so uh, over his last over his last 55 games after coming up uh, after returning from the minors, he had 196 plate appearances, a 306 batting average, 29 runs, 27 RBI, seven home runs, and one stolen base. His swing, uh, his play discipline is very good, 28.1%. His in-zone contact over that same period of time was at 92%, so elite in-zone contact, so that batting average looks solid. And then his hard hit rate spiked like crazy, up to 45.3%, and he also hit a ton more uh, fly balls than he had previously. He was he was previously like a very low, like around 20, you know, 5% uh, fly ball rate. It got all the way up to 34% over those last 55 games. Um, and so, you know, he's a guy who has the skills to have a high batting average, which could do a really solid floor, especially tracking him like in the mid 300s where he's going. And he also showed the, that flash of power. And so I'm willing to bet on that type of profile, like I mentioned, like having that hit tool. And maybe he's been able to adjust his launch angle and get more home runs out of it. It's all a little bit harder. I don't know what it is, but he looked really good towards the end of last year. He's a guy that I own as my second baseman or middle infielder in pretty much every single league that I draft in, um, all except for one so far this year where somebody picked him in the high 200s and I just wasn't expecting it. So he's a guy that I really love going here, and he's the guy that I own in like pretty much every league, which is scary because if he doesn't do well, then I'm, 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 I'm in trouble. <laughs> 
Yeah, he's on my list too. Uh, another guy who jumps out to me is uh, Cattell Marte. Uh, steamer, the steamer projections love him. Like I, you look at uh, the points projections he has in those tracks, 10 best balls. And it's like way, way higher than his ADP would indicate. Um, but I don't know if I fully buy it with him. I, I'm at the very least intrigued by him though. Some uh, other players a little further down, uh, the second base eligible guys in Tampa Bay, Willie Adames and Joey Wendell or Wendell. I just don't really know what to expect from either of those guys. So I'm curious to see if one of them can pop right now. If you look at roster resource, Wendell is slated to bat higher in the order, uh, but the projections seem to favor the the production from Adames, uh, you know, power speed combo. And you know, it seems like both of them are going to play a lot. So I think that there's some potential value there. And the last situation I'm looking at at second base is what's going on with the Detroit Tigers. They brought in Josh Harrison. Is he going to stick? Is he going to stay healthy? And if not, is Nico Goodrum going to get in there? The projections don't really like Goodrum that much. Like the batting average projections are pretty low for him. Uh, but another like power speed potential player. And I, I don't know, like I've heard other smart people in fantasy talk him up. I just don't see it when I look at the projections. Do you have any strong feelings on the Tiger situation at second base? Yeah, I mean, it's a little sad that Goodrum isn't going to get the full-time plate appearances because I do think he's an interesting kind of power speed guy. There's a lot of volatility in the profile, um, in the contact rate, and the O-swing. He was kind of up and down throughout the year last year, if I remember correctly. So I think that profile is kind of, you know, there's a lot of risk with that, but I think where he's going, there's some reward. And that power speed is something really nice to get later on. So he would have been a guy that if Harrison hadn't come along and, and kind of added another uh, another guy to get playing time into the equation, I probably would have been targeting him later on in draft. But at this point in time, I'm probably uh, not. I'd probably be more likely to take a gamble on a guy like uh, TK Hernandez, who I think has really nice underlying skills and, and took a really big step forward last year or even like a Chad Pinder is a guy that I like a lot who has second base and outfield eligibility um, in Oakland too if he can get great appearances I think um, can put up a really nice season so I'd rather go with a guy like guys like that than Goodrum at this point in time kind of banking on those skills. Let's move to shortstop and we'll do some more rapid fire eligibility questions. Uh, where does Alberto Mondesi rank for you relative to Javi Baez and Xander Bogarts? Uh, I have Mondesi just behind both of those guys uh, as my number eight shortstop. Like shortstop is really deep this season. Yeah. Um, but yeah, where are you out of Mondesi? Where does he rank relative to those uh, high end guys if he has shortstop eligibility in your league? Yeah, I love out of Barton Mondesi, but he's still my seventh ranked um, shortstop, just like you. I have him out. Baez um, and Bogarts. I think Mondesi, uh, I think the only thing that stops Mondesi from being a, a, a nice guy to have on your team is if he gets injured. Um, I don't see him getting demoted. You know, they, they don't have the same type of um, clock concerns as other prospects do. And they showed a willingness to have Alcides Escobar as the worst hitter in baseball, get 700 plate appearances. Um, and Mondesi plays plus defense. So I think he's going to get plate appearances. He's going to get stolen bases. He's going to get home runs. He's, I, I like Mondesi a lot, but I love Xander Bogarts. He's my, he's one of my favorite players heading into this year, even though he's you know kind of uh, still going in like the mid forties to low fifties right now in ADP. I absolutely love what I saw from him last year. I think he's going to have a huge year. Um, so yeah, like you mentioned, shortstop is really deep. Um, and so you know, it's nice to get a guy, you know, early on, but if you do miss out on these guys up top, I think there's some really nice options later on in drafts too. So one of those later options uh, in some formats might be Jonathan VR uh, on the Orioles. He has second base and shortstop eligibility in some formats. And 
I'm curious if he cracks your top 12 shortstops because the position is deep. Um, for me, he's just outside. I have him at number 14 among shortstops, but where does VR rank for you in this group? Oh, that's a good question. I would probably have him as my 13th ranked shortstop. I'd probably put him behind Ahmed Rosario and in front of Corey Seager. You know, I might even have him ahead of Ahmed Rosario. I mean, I think the thing about VR is he's not good. You know, um, he's not particularly good defensively. Uh, He's not a good hitter, uh, but he will hit, you know, with enough plate appearances, double-digit home runs, and he'll steal a ton of bases. And so, uh, you know, that that is giving him value. He's pretty expensive in drafts, though, now. I mean, at least in the NFBC, he's a top 70 pick now which I'm just not willing to do. I also think that he's not a part of the future in Baltimore. And so I could see them trading him to a team that was looking for like a pinch hitter towards the end of the, or a pinch runner towards the end of the year. Or if he struggles, I don't see them having the same leash with him uh, as other guys might have. I could see them like DFAing him or something like that. Um, so he's, I, I don't, uh, I don't love VR, but the profile of double digit home runs and a ton of stolen bases is good enough. I think him kind of uh, in that range i still probably wouldn't draft him just because of the profile but um, i'd probably have him like around uh 13 or so yeah that sounds about right i mean i'm in lockstep with you there at 14 kind of in that range of seager jose peraza maybe um yeah, I think he, he kind of profiles similar to those guys, at least in terms of value, maybe not in terms of stats. Now, I want to get into some guys that we differ on, but uh, the first player I want to talk to you about at shortstop, or the next player I want to talk to you about at shortstop is Gleyber Torres, and we're actually pretty close in terms of ranking. You have him at, I think, number nine shortstop. I am at 11, and, and honestly, I thought that I was high on him, uh, so it surprised me to see you a couple spots higher than me, and so that's why it feels like a big difference. Um, public projections all have Torres around... 25 homers, 10 steals, and it feels like the counting stats should be there thanks to the Yankees lineup, but how do we see through these potential team-based biases or the hype around a team like the Yankees, you know, these high-profile franchises? How do we distance ourselves from that and make a proper evaluation with somebody like Torres? Because sometimes it's hard to know. Like, you look at where sites rank him, you look at where he goes in ADP. Do you think that it's fair for Torres in 2019 relative to what you expect from him in fantasy stat production? Um, yeah, I mean, I think what you mentioned is tough because there are these biases and I think, I think you just have to be aware of them. That's what I really like. So this is the first year that I've actually done these valuation, uh, the projections and then the, like the dollar valuation for each of the players for those aggregate projections. And that's what I really like about it is it's able to cut through like, you know, some of the BS that's out there and some of the narrative to kind of identify like what the true value of a player is. Uh, is not necessarily the projections are always right, but it at least gives you kind of like, you know, these are really complex algorithms that create the projections. And so, you know, unless there's something that you disagree with to a really big extent, then it's about like what that valuation should be. And so like Torres at, at ADP of 67, he's a, he's a $15 player according to the projection, which is a good player, you know, um, and he's got multi uh, dual position eligibility, but it's a $17 cost for that. So, uh, you know, I, I would drop him back a little bit. I think, um, you know, that's one, another reason why I like the expect, expected stats is because they do help break through and, and say like, okay, what of what he did was maybe a little bit fluky. It can't have everything, but it at least gives you a sense. So like he, his expected average was 261 last year, Torres's. He hit 24 home runs, but only 19 expected home runs. So, 
you know, he got off to just a, a smoking hot start. Then he had that injury and kind of faded towards the end of last year. So being able to identify what that true talent measure might be um, is difficult. And so I like using things like that to be able to, um, you know, identify what, what maybe that true value is. And he doesn't have the same stolen base upside as some other shortstops, I don't think, you know, both because he's on, um, you know, the, the Yankees in that lineup and also just because he's not, he's not as fast as, um, uh, you know, a lot of other shortstops and, and doesn't necessarily have that history in his minor league pedigree either. And so, um, you know, that's kind of where I'm at Torres. I think he's a fine player, but I do think that that Yankees hype is definitely boosting him up. Yeah, and I mean, it, it is interesting because we can look at those expected stats. We can look at the expected home runs relative to what he produced and say, oh, he was only supposed to hit 19, he hit 26. Some of that we can assign to his home park, right? Like the Yankee Stadium is a place that is conducive to home runs in some respects. And so even he is going to get to play half of his games there. And that does need to matter. We need to factor that into our calculus somehow, but we we kind of need to take away the mystique of it just because it's the Yankees. You know what I mean? And, and that's where you, you got to kind of be a little bit more analytical when you're, when you're evaluating these players. Um, but yeah, I, I still like Torres fine. I think he's going to end up on a couple of my rosters. I drafted him in barf uh, and I don't know. I'll be curious to see how he does relative to the hype. Another player that we differed on pretty drastically was Tim Anderson, and I just have to eat crow in this rank. Like I thought, is this is one of those things where when you do rankings a little more casually, as I do, uh, sometimes you just kind of think back to the name brand of a player. You think back of what type of stats you think they produce, and it helps when you actually go and look at the stats. Because when I look at what Tim Anderson has done over the past couple seasons, like that power speed combo is legit. And I, I don't think that that's going away. Um, wh- why wouldn't he play every day? Like there, there's a lot of reason to like him uh, there. So me being eight spots lower than you on Tim Anderson was a mistake. I am going to correct that. Um, one player who we disagree on that I think uh, maybe we, we should have some discussion on is Paul DeJong or Paul. Do you know how you pronounce it? Paul DeJong? Uh, Paul DeJong. Um, for as much as you've talked about how you like balance with guys, I'm curious why you have DeYoung rated so high at this position because his stat profile is relatively unbalanced. I, like, I look at roster resource and I, it tabs him to hit second, which is appealing, but I'm not sure I buy that considering you know his OBP projections are in like the 305 to 320 range. Like I don't know if he profiles as a top-of-the-order hitter like that, and... I don't see the speed. So if I don't see the speed, I don't see the average. Like I'm worried about a player like this. And so I'm curious why you're as high on him as you are. Yeah. Well, I think DeJong, uh, so there's a, there's a few reasons why I like DeJong. I think number one is he does have an unbalanced profile, but at this point in the draft, right? Like his ADP, I think is around like, like 175 at this point in the draft, you know, I'm less worried about that. And I'm more worried about maybe filling in some of the gaps that I see in my team. And if that is power, I mean, I still have like a middle infield slot or a shortstop slot to fill. I think DeYoung's the guy that I want if I've already addressed like stolen bases and batting average earlier on in my drafts, which hopefully I have. Um, so that's one of them. One thing that I love about DeYoung is the continuous improvement. If you look at his rolling graphs, like all he does is improve. All he does is make more contact. All he does is get better plate discipline. Like it's hard to see in the numbers, but last year he actually had better than league average play discipline. Um, his in-zone contact rate jumped 5.5% to, to over 2% better than league average, which is not reflected in his strikeout rate. Um, you know, his BABIP was, was, fell pretty far, but he also had a uh, – he broke a bone in his hand, 
And after that, he really struggled from the power department. But in 490 plate appearances, he still had 19 home runs. I think he's a guy who can hit 30 home runs if he gets enough plate appearances. See that in the bat profile with in 606 plate appearances, 251 batting average, 27 home runs, 73 runs, 83 RBI for De Jong. Uh, that's what the bats projection is for him. Uh, all of them have him like 23, 24, 26, 27. So in that mid upper uh, home run totals in terms of 20s. So I just really like a guy who is always improving. He hit more fly balls and fewer ground balls. Um, his hard hit rate was up. Um, all with like a broken hand in the middle of it. So I wouldn't see, be surprised to see Young, you know, jump up into the 270s and batting average, hit 25 to 30 home runs. And where he is in the batting uh, order, I think he's going to score a lot of runs and a lot of RBI as well. So he's a guy that I don't mind at all if you need that type of power bat at a middle infield position um, towards the end of the uh, not the end of the draft, but you know, in those later rounds of the draft. Yeah, I guess the big sticking point for me is whether he is going to hold that spot at the top of the order. And that could very well just dictate whether or not I'm too low or too high on him. But I do agree that if you're looking for power from that position or from your middle infield position, uh, De Jong's a, a perfect place to go for that because he, he clearly can can hit homers. Like, we've seen him do that. He's going to continue to do that. Next two guys I want to bring up are Nick Ahmed and Lourdes Gurriel Jr., uh, the aforementioned guy from the Blue Jays. And you were just a little bit higher on both of these guys than I was, Toby. Um, like, Ahmed looks like a bad to decent compiler. And if the at-bats are there, he'll continue to do that. Uh, Guriel projects slightly better, but he has those playing time concerns that we talked about earlier. Uh, I mean... We're not targeting either of these guys. Like, even though you have them ranked higher than I do, these aren't guys you're actively looking to pick up, are they? Uh, not necessarily. Like, I'm in a in my TGFBI league. Ahmed didn't get picked up. Uh, Guriel did, uh, but I'm not really. I'm not as on Guriel because I think there's just more question marks about like where he's going to play and um, you know just just some of those types of question marks. Um, so that's the reason why. Um, uh, so I'm I'm not like super high on them. I'm really low on the end on the end of shortstop. Like I think after I think shortstop is uh, deep up to about you know maybe 25, but after that I think it gets really shallow pretty quickly. And there's not a ton of guys that I'm really that um, interested in in there. For Nick Ahmed, uh, one of the reasons why I was um, higher. Um, on him, I just saw some development in his profile in the second half. He started to make more contact. So over his last 40 games, his in-zone contact rate was up at 91.7%. Uh, his ground ball rate uh, was right around the average. His hard hit rate peaked at um, 50% over 40 games um, and then kind of descended towards the end of the year, but still finished better than league uh, average. Um, and then he was also at the same time that that uh, hard hit rate peaked at 50 percent. His plate discipline was better than league average as well. And so he seemed like a guy who was getting close to putting it together. And he's going to be a compiler like he's going to get plate appearances. He won the gold glove last year. And so if you think about it last year and, you know, 560 plate appearances, he hit 234, 16 home runs, 61 runs, 70 RBI, five stolen bases. If he approves on that slightly, you know, and get 600 plate appearances. Maybe you're looking at 250, you know, 20 home runs, uh, 70 runs, 80 RBI, and that all of a sudden becomes a somewhat useful player. Guriel is a guy who actually, you know, started out, uh, you know, really hot. He broke the record for 
uh, or got close to the record for most multi-hit games in a row. And when I look at like the expected metrics compared to the, the actual metrics, he, um, he was really good. Uh, expected average of 287, you know, 10 home runs um, out of the 11 in 263 plate appearances. So if you double that, which you can't do, I'm not saying you should do that, but if you did double that to 500 plate appearances, you're looking at 20 home runs and a really good batting average. And he's also a guy who missed like a year and a half, I think, because he um, defected from Cuba and he wasn't able to play baseball for like a year and a half. So a lot of uh, I was listening to either Prospects Live or some other podcast, and they were mentioning how a scout had said, like, this is a guy who didn't play baseball for like a year and a half. And so you, they wouldn't be surprised to see him kind of get to that next level. So that is at least interesting to me. But why I'm not that high on him is just that the underlying skills are not great. Poor plate discipline. Uh, the contact skills are uh, faded towards the end of last year. Um, the hard hit rate faded toward the end of last year and overall for the season. So I think he's okay. He's worth a worth a risk, but he's going like at an ADP around 220, and there's too many good players left, so I'm not targeting him at that point in time. One uh, player who is getting targeted just because the hype is, is so strong is Fernando Tatis Jr., should make his debut or I should make his extended debut for the Padres at some point this season. But when do you think that's going to be like, when do you, when is he going to hit the majors and is he worth drafting? Because that Padres lineup looks a lot more crowded now. And I just, I don't know if he's going to be able to get enough at bats for him to be worth holding through the first, you know, month, two months, three months of the season. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you, this is one of those picks where like, you may look really, really foolish if he gets called up, but you know, I've gotten a couple questions on Twitter about this, and, and I don't think he's draftable in like a traditional 15-team league, um, at least not in NFBC where you only have seven slots and no DL or no minor leagues like where you where you would roster him. I think that like he, he still strikes out at a good clip, and so I still think that there's things that he can work on in the minors. He's supposed to be very good defensively. He's got pop. He's got speed. But I just don't think that the Padres – I don't think the Padres, if they're honest with themselves, consider their – their window to compete this year. I think it starts next year. And so he's a guy that I think he's more likely to debut, uh, you know, kind of later in the summer or be a September call-up than I think, you know, having him play uh, right off the bat. They have Urias, who's, you know, going to be playing shortstop. They have Machado at third base now. They they got Kinsler at second base. Maybe they move Urias over to second and move Tuffy's Jr. to shortstop, but I think they want to give Urias a, a, a glimpse. He's kind of further along as a prospect um, than Tatis, not in terms of like talent and quality, but just in terms of like, you know, having been at AAA and been at AA for a longer period of time. So I think Tatis Jr. comes up later. I'm not drafting him in a 15 team league, but there's worse things to do than speculate and draft him and see kind of how spring training plays out and whether there's any early season injuries. Is that how you tend to, you know, you mentioned being a little bit more conservative on some of these rookie guys is that approach yeah absolutely i'm not drafting i'm not drafting tatis jr either uh i i don't think we're gonna see enough of him for him to be that relevant like it's it's one of those things where i'd rather let somebody else draft him clog up that roster spot and then hopefully you know they get so frustrated waiting around from that they just drop him at some point and then i can pick up the scraps in you know a league or two maybe and try to get my exposure that way the price you have to pay for the potential is usually too high on these types of guys. And so I, I tend to avoid them. 
who are your favorite values outside of the top 20 shortstops? Earlier, you had touched on Jorge Polanco, Marcus Simeon, and Dralton Simmons. I love all three of those guys as well. Uh, do you want to highlight maybe one of those guys specifically, or is there anybody else a little deeper down you want to you want to mention here for the shortstop position? Well, the challenge with those guys is I actually have those guys within my top 20 for shortstops. Um, I have them 14 through 16, but I will touch on them just because I think this is a huge pocket of value. Like uh, their projections are are better than where they're going at a cost value. Polanco seems to be the guy that's getting the most helium. In a couple of my drafts, I've seen him go like in the 170s and the 180s. I think he even went in the 160s in our GFBI. You know, but they're all scheduled to make like three to four dollars worth of value where they're going. Uh, I think Polanco probably has the most balanced profile of all of them. Like solid average, he's going to be batting leadoff a lot. He's a he's a um, he's a switch hitter. Uh, he's fifteen fifteen in terms of home run and stolen bases. Uh, so really solid there. Andrelton Simmons has you know maybe a better batting average than the, than all three of them. Maybe slightly less power. Still steals bases and you know, is in a decent top of the lineup with Mike Trout there, continuously seems to improve. And then Semyon, I'll focus mostly on Semyon because I think he's kind of the guy, I think, of this group that's been falling further behind because he doesn't do anything particularly well. But I think towards the end of last year, the skills really started to come together nicely for him where his play discipline was very, very good. His in-zone contact rate was very, very good started to hit the ball a little bit harder. He started to hit the ball a little bit more in the air. And one thing that's, uh, that I think is, is key for him is that Simeon broke his uh, wrist at the beginning of 2017, and it, it forced him to miss most of the season. And so he came back, and, he, it, you know, I think it was like you know, he's been maybe like a year and a half now away. And so if you think about a guy like a Trevor Story who injured his wrist um, you know, and the, the first year he came back kind of struggled to make the same level of contact, but then in 2018, make that huge jump. I think Semyon, he's not going to be Trevor Story, obviously, but I think he's a guy that maybe with a little bit more uh, distance away from that wrist injury and with the skills that he has could get back to hitting more than 20 home runs, feeling close to 15 bases. And we might see that batting average boost up a little bit as well because the contact rate has improved. So he's a guy that I like a lot where he's going right there, but if you miss out on short stops, don't be too worried, but try to get one of these three guys because I think all three of them are great. Yeah, they're all really similar. I think Simeon might actually be my favorite of them just based upon the value. He's the guy I've ended up with the most. But um, yeah. Simmons, people don't like Simmons. People didn't like him last year either, and he had a similar sort of profile coming into the year. He delivered on that profile, and here we are again, you know, repeating the same mistakes as a as an ADP community. But um, yeah, definitely a lot of value with all three of those guys. Uh, if you're digging a little deeper, uh, you touched on Ball Cabrera earlier. I think that he's a good call for late shortstop value. Um, Willie Adames, uh, I touched on him in the second base section. And the last guy I want to know, I, I, I guess I'm just a Giants homer. That must be it because I'm going to talk about Brandon Crawford, who, again, just based upon the type of production you're going to get from him, I know the park isn't good. I know that the Giants are you know, not going to be a great team. And I, I don't think we can necessarily hold that against all these guys as much as we are because maybe that means one of them gets traded to a better situation like I talked about with Belt or in the case of Crawford like his defense is going to keep him on the field so the at-bats are probably going to be there I just I think that there's value in that Giants team that people are overlooking because of you know just how bad they project to be as a franchise um is there anybody else uh, along those lines like a little bit deeper that you like um as maybe a flyer shortstop or do you want to touch on any of these other guys again 
Uh, no, I mean, I think uh, Kike Hernandez would be one guy who I think would be really interesting. I don't like Chris Taylor at all on the Dodgers. His uh, contact rate went through the uh, whatever the floor um, <laughs> towards the end of last year. Um, and so I actually like Hernandez maybe to steal some of his at-bats at a second base or a shortstop or even the outfield. Um, and so, and Kike, you know, really improved last year against righties, um, or at least the sample size got big enough where he improved. And then uh, he improved his plate discipline, his hard hit rate, his contact rate, his fly ball rate. And those are all all four things that I look at really, really closely. So Kike Hernandez is a guy going around ADP of 300 that I think is worth uh, taking it as a in kind of a reserve spot to see how he does. I'm going to throw one more curveball at you for the shortstop position. If you have to just do a last round gamble on one of these guys, would you prefer to pick up Scott Kingery of the Phillies or Troy Tulowitzki of the Yankees? Two completely different players, but I uh, I mean, where where would you fall between those two if I put them head to head for you? Yeah, I would uh, I would say I'd probably go with Kingery. Um, you know, obviously he looked bad last year. The skill profile isn't, um, isn't great based on the first year, but it is the first year and he does have power and he does have speed and those are valuable. I think the challenge with Kulowitzki is, um, you know, number one, obviously health. Like I just don't believe that he's going to be healthy. And so I, I wouldn't waste a pick on him necessarily. It's just too, it just goes too deep, um, to see him turning it around. Um, I also don't think that the speed will be there. I think that it's, and it's also a question of, is he better than DJ LeMahieu? Because I think Torres moves over to shortstop and DJ LeMahieu slots in at second base and, you know, whether or not Tulo is better than uh, DJ LeMahieu, I'm not sure. I'm just not sure how good Tulo is at shortstop anymore. So for those reasons, I'd lean, I'd lean Kingery just because he can play a lot of positions. Um, he's young. He's got that kind of power speed combo, if nothing else. And you never know when when it clicks for these guys, um, and maybe maybe that could be this year for Kingery. Yeah, I'm with you. I would definitely take Kingery of the two, just again for that untapped potential, that upside that he might have. I, I am fascinated by Tulowitzki though, because it just seems like he's going to play at least until Didi Gregorius is is healthy f- somewhere. Like whether that's at DH some days, or even at first base taking over for Voigt in some cases. Like I think he's going to find his way onto the field when he's healthy and. In that lineup, in that park, I think that there's value there. I just, I don't know how to assign that sort of value in a draft. Like, and, and so for that reason, I tend to avoid Tulowitzki. But he's intriguing to me. I'm curious to see how his season shapes up. All right, Toby, we've been going for a long time here through the infield positions. We didn't get to catcher, we didn't get to outfield or any of the pitching spots, and I and I do want to do that. Like uh, we we had planned to do that, but this episode has gone so long. I'd like to kick all those other positions to uh, a second episode. And with that in mind, we're going to wrap things up here after the shortstop position. Uh, Toby, thank you very much for joining me. This has been a ton of fun, and you're super knowledgeable. You're really making me smarter. You're making the listeners smarter. Um, why don't you let them know how, where they can find you on social media, where they can find your work, uh, and all that good stuff. Yeah, well, thanks so much, Greg. Yeah, I've I've really enjoyed this. If you can't tell by how much I, I've been uh, talking, uh, but it's just been a lot of fun. Really looking forward to the second half of it. If folks do want to reach me on social media, the best place to do that is on Twitter at uh, BatFlipCrazy. I do have uh, an Instagram and a Facebook uh, account, so if you are interested, you can look for those. The website is BatFlipCrazy.com, uh, and the podcast is just search for BatFlipCrazy. It's available on iTunes and all uh, of your usual podcast platforms. But really appreciate the opportunity to come on here and talk some fantasy baseball with you, Greg. 
Yeah, it's been great. And, and listeners, be sure to check out Toby's work. Uh, his podcast is excellent. Like I said, at the, at the top of the show, it's it's comprehensive. Like he covers every player, every position uh, with in-depth stats. Uh, and, and as you can tell from this show, he's super enthusiastic about baseball and about fantasy. So uh, you would do yourself a service to subscribe to his show and be, and be listening to that as well. Um, if you have any questions or feedback for this show, uh, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Greg Sauce. Uh, please take the time to rate and review the podcast. Hit that subscribe button while you're at it. All that stuff really helps me out. Uh, and we'll catch you uh, on the balance of this show uh, with outfielders, uh, pitchers, and catchers. Uh, until then, adios. Thanks for listening.